I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We have James joining us today. Tom, you want to kick this off? Absolutely. James, thanks for joining us today. And uh, welcome aboard. You and I had a really good conversation recently. I'm going to go ahead and hand you the microphone. Um, it's really just an open forum, so uh, we can start at the beginning. But, you know, you're, uh, you've got some um, historical contacts that are interesting. And also we wanted to, you know, if we get time, we'd love to get into, uh, you know, there's a, anything you might know about the Primate Research Center and Tom Slick. And so, but we'll let you just kind of drive the show and go from there. Yeah, uh, basically, as a youth growing up in the part of Louisiana, which uh, the southern part swamp and the northern part is deciduous pine forest, we had an abundance of black bear. And when I was 10 years old, I was walking along a bayou, uh, which, uh, and there was what I thought was a black bear by the edge of the water. And when I walked around to the side of it from about 50 meters away, I saw that it actually had arms instead of the short forelegs of a black bear. And it had a huge swamp rabbit in its hands and it torn most of the hide and fur off of it. And it was swishing it back and forth in the water. Did we lose each other? Yeah, Will, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. It, it just kind of went dead. Maybe yeah. we'll start all so, over again. Uh, when I kind of went around to the side, um, it stood up, and the first thing that struck me was, now this might have been a juvenile, because it was only about maybe 5 feet, 10 inches tall, but the thing that struck me the most was incredible muscularity you know of of, of the thing and um uh, you know the way it looked at you um and so you know to a 10 year old kid it, it's kind of shocking that's just the same it was a black bear until it stood up so uh, a couple of things stood out at me the the brown back the brown black excuse me uh color of the fur and the upper muscularity looked more like uh, a human than the the body frame of a black bear. Uh, James, did the creature look at you at any point? It did. And, you know, uh, in fact, before it stood up, um, you know, most primates, that when they turn their head to the left or right, uh, they don't have much of a neck, so the shoulder and the the latissimus dorsi flex. That's that's true in humans also. 
So when it it turned around and looked at me, it stood up. And of course, the first thing I noticed was the massive muscularity. It, it did not appear to be any member of the known uh, Ursus bear family. It was uh, completely different. And the face, I don't remember so much about, but except the eyes were kind of like a brown tinged in red. And the, the size of the hands and the length of the limbs. Uh, the uh, That would be what Dr. Melvin calls the IMI intermembral index. Uh, this thing had arms that were way out of what a normal human would have. Uh, body to limb ratio. The le- the arms were extremely long. Did um, you, when you're looking at the arms, what about the hair on the arms and versus the hair? Was there any hair on the face? You know that sort of thing. The the hair on the arms was was uh, longer than what you would see on a normal human. Um, and it was it was really thick, but it was longer than what you would have on a human. And of course, um, I was more focused on the, the anatomy of the the upper chest, you know, the the pectoral muscles, the biceps, the width of the shoulders, the deltoids. It was just massively muscular. But it was not I'm, I say it may have been a juvenile because it was only about five, ten, or six inches tall, or six feet tall. I don't think it was an actual full-grown adult. Uh, And so uh, when it stood up, it just stood there for about five seconds. And it had that rabbit in its hands. And then it turned around and began to to walk away. And it has, you know, what they call a non-compliant gait. Um, it kind of walked without locking its knees out. And, you know, they you hear other witnesses say it kind of glided across the ground. This thing had a, like a, I don't know, 50-inch stride or something. The, you know, the, uh, but it, it was not locking its legs out. Right. Now... I'm trying to remember. Were were you um, were you on the opposite shore or in a boat or? No, I, I have been walking down the same uh, bayou, which is what we call a creek in Louisiana. And now, as, as opposed to the smell, I didn't smell anything. But when you're in that kind of swamp environment, which is cypress trees and stuff, and a lot of decaying moss, it's kind of a rank smell anyway. <laughs> right, I know a thing but, or two about that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, you hear people encounter one in the northwest, they're not in the swamp. You smell a very rank smell. That's kind of how, in the Louisiana Cypress Swamp, that's kind of how it smells all the time. But when I saw it squatted down, the width of its back, um, I just assumed that it was a black bear. But when it when I got around to the side of it, and I saw the actual arms and the hands, and the hands were huge, really huge. Uh, and then even when it stood up, it, it had one leg forward, you know, and the 
the, it wasn't really standing up. It was, but it, it didn't appear to show any fear with me. I think we stared at each other for at least three or four seconds. And did you guys, did you make eye contact with it? Yes. I, I definitely remember the eyes. Um, uh, in a um, somewhat, uh, well, the, let's just go back a few generations. Like a, as a kid, Homo erectus, you know, that, those, the evolution. Um, it had no neck. Um, the thing that stood out to me also was a conical-shaped, um, for lack of a better term, the top of the head. I found out later that that's what's called uh, uh, the uh, the shape, sagittal it's, crest, it's, or yeah, the occipital crest, which is common to primates. And uh, we probably each other for four or five seconds, and then it when it turned um, again, I saw the muscles in the back flex. And then when it started walking away, it was like just, um, I, I couldn't give you an accurate measure of the stride, uh, but it but it was big. Um, so. Um, what, um, just if you're to sort of compare your stride with its stride, would you say the stride of this creature would have been significant or, or a bit more than what your stride would be? I would say if it was a human, if it was an actual human, uh, that it it probably had a stride a foot and a half, or maybe even two foot two feet longer. And yeah, uh, you know, it was just, but it was incredibly fast. You know, um, the way it moved, and then when it once it got in the the tree line or the brush line there by the creek, it just kind of. The brownish black color, you you could see some of the uh, the grass on the ground moving and the small branches that it was disturbing as it walked away, but it just moved incredibly smooth and fast. Yeah, that's a pretty real common, a very common description of these things. And I apologize, I think you said that. Again, this was how about how old were you when you saw this? I was ten years old. It was four years before the Patterson Gimlin film came out. So, what and, was uh, your reaction when you see this thing, and what were you thinking? Well, you know, you you at that time in Louisiana, you know, as you and I talked about the, the black bear were common. Um, and then they died out for a while, but, uh, you know, um, when you and I had talked about the colonel, he had asked me about, you know, when, about Ben Lilly. And uh, like right. you and I discussed, um, my grandfather spent a lot of time in that part of Louisiana when it was, it was very unpopulated. They, there were, there, of course, there were railroads, but. Um, they didn't go into that part of Louisiana, where the southern part is swamp and the northern part is pine forest, deciduous pine forest, with lots of uh, naturally occurring fruit 
uh, fish and small game. So for that reason, I went to my grandfather first, as you and I talked about, and I explained to him what I saw. And that's when he told me about encountering the famous guy named Ben Lilly. And um, I, I'm, I don't know if, how many people are familiar with it. Well, that's what that was. You're you're going right to where I'm going. Let's let's hear about Ben Lilly, and kind of how he ties into all this. Well, see, the 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 colonel had asked me if there if there was any written documentation by Ben Lilly, and I said no. But just this was a the duck the the swamp was called Doug Demona. That's a Choctaw Indian word, and the swamp next to that is the Catahoula. Uh, Catahoula. And we don't have counties in Louisiana. We have parishes, the Catholic influence. But anyway, just out of curiosity, I Googled Doug Demona Swamp, and there is a uh, several newspaper articles describing the Doug Demona wild woman. Actually, two of them. One was small and probably juvenile. And one was really tall and could run real fast. So, uh, but they were in the Doug Demona Swamp. And the, the gist of the story is my grandfather worked for a company called the Big Pine Lumber Company. Now, these guys were going in the swamp with oxen, okay? And they were cutting down cypress trees that were probably six, eight feet in diameter. In other words, it was virgin timber and virgin pine. And there was a big demand, of course, for wood. So they were going into... Yeah, people had walked through there, hunted through there, but they were going there and disturbing the habitat. So when I went to my grandfather and told him what I'd seen, uh, he told me to sit down and he, he said, um, he's told me about Ben Lilly. And sometime around 1920, Ben Lilly, uh, for whoever's listening, was probably the most uh, prolific hunter of apex predators in, in the northern United States. You know, the, they say that he killed 300, over 300 black bear and over 110 uh, mountain lions or cougars. Later in life, he became a, a contributor to the U.S. Uh, Naturalism Museum and everything. But he was basically self-educated woodsman, you know, and so Teddy Roosevelt wanted to go hunting with him down there in that part of Louisiana because um, we never had timber wolves in Louisiana. We had what was called Louisiana Red Wolf, and that's what Teddy Roosevelt wanted. But Ben Lilly was, you can read all kinds of stories about him. And I don't know if you're familiar with the historian J. Frank Doby, a uh, Texas historian. No, I'm not, but somebody look up, it sounds like. Yeah, well, he wrote a book called The Ben Lilly Legend. And what, you know, Thomas, you and I discussed, Teddy Roosevelt was a, was the type of hunter that would just walk through the brush all day long, you know, wear out his hunting guides. But even Teddy Roosevelt said that Ben Lilly would outlast anyone on the hunt. And so he was super impressed with him. When my grandfather was, they were cutting cypress logs out of this part of the swamp, Ben Lilly walked out. And all he had was a blanket roll around his shoulder, a big tin cup, a rifle, and a big knife. And he said that he had been hunting 
an animal for four days in a row that at first he thought was a bear paw print, but it wasn't like any bear paw print he'd ever seen. So he's weaving his way through, you know, the cypress and the low-hanging branches on his trail, and he comes face-to-face with an animal that, of course, he thought it was a black bear uh, until it reared up on its hind legs. And so that's never been in written documentation. It's kind of an oral history that's passed down, but my great-great-uncle fought in the Civil War in the Doug DeMonte Swamp, I have two articles, uh, old newspapers from 1898-1900. In one year, he killed over 100 black bear. And you got to remember, they, they, they skinned the black bear and they smoked it. And they were selling the meat as bear bacon. And I've eaten it. It tells, tastes kind of like roast pork. But it gives you an idea of what that type of environment was where a large mammal could not only survive, but, you know, and everything. Yeah, well, it, and it really does sound like he ran into one of these creatures and was tracking it. And there's plenty of food. I mean, it's definitely there's, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to be wanting any kind of, a, you know, they're going to have all sorts of food sources there. Um. A lot of blackberries, huckleberries, um, what we call poke salad, which is the greens like spinach. Um, a lot of small mammals like swamp rabbits, uh, raccoons and everything. So a large mammal like a bear could survive there. You know, bears are omnivores. And so, but um, when Ben Lilly came out of that swamp area and he walked up there and he asked these guys, they had some, even back then, they all carried coffee grounds with them, you know, wherever they went. Said, you guys got any coffee? And so they started talking. So Ben Lilly told my grandfather, he's like, I've been following this, following this critter, call them critters, you know, self-educated guy. But he said, I came face to face with it on the third day, but it looked like a bear, but it didn't look like a bear. So... Um, I didn't tell the colonel the other day, but just out of curiosity, I googled Doug Demona Swamp, and they talk about two female creatures, one large and one small, that were covered in hair, and they talk about one of them that could jump five or six feet over a barbed wire fence. So that's not a bear. No, it couldn't. It couldn't be a bear, you know. But um. So, you know, it, it, it really imprinted on my mind. It got me interested in, in other stuff. Um, but um, this was before the days of photography and mass media, right? So there's nothing written about Ben Lilly, unless it's in Frank Dobie's book, but there's nothing about it that's written down. But there is some documentation uh, and a couple of national newspapers about the Doug DeMona wild women. And and you have to see this part of the swamp in Louisiana um, where you, you got huge alligators. They say that freshwater American alligators don't get beyond 
12, 15 feet, they they get to 18 feet, okay? Um, a lot of snakes, uh, a lot of raccoons. The rabbits are really huge. I don't know what to compare them. I don't know the genus of that type of rabbit, but you can compare them to a, a West Texas jackrabbit. Now, you think about trying to catch a jackrabbit in your hands while you're chasing them. You see what I'm talking about? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, they're huge. We got them out here, too, in the eastern part of the state. They're immense, and they're very fast. Yeah. So, like you and I talked about, Tom, when I worked at the embassy in Mexico City for two years, that's when that reporter from San Antonio Express News went missing in Copper Canyon down in the state of Chihuahua. And that's where you had the Tarahumari Indians. And they have been relatively undiscovered because they don't want to be discovered. But they are one tribe I know of that still uh, does persistent persistence hunting. Are you familiar with that? I was about to ask you because, no, I'm not. Persistence hunting is when you work in a rally of teams where they will regularly chase a white-tailed deer down to where it can't run anymore. And the Tarahumara people, whose real name is Rarumari, but they will regularly run the equivalent of two 27K marathons in a row. And the craziest thing is they don't wear running shoes. They wear the chanclas or the huarachis, the solos, which made out of tire tread, right? So they don't run heel to toe. They run, they shuffle their feet back and forward. And so they'll literally run down it's called persistence hunting. Uh, the Bantu tribe in Africa does the same thing. But if you think that this creature can move that fast and run that far, I'm pretty sure it could run down a deer or any other mammal, including a rabbit. Sure. Um, yeah, I think they're very cunning. They've got a lot of that, you know, obviously they have a lot of developed tactics for getting their food. Um, I don't know about Louisiana, but I think here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, they use ambush tactics. So, yeah, yes. they do what they got to do. Well, you know, we, we talked about that. Um, we we have the History Channel. We have Matt Moneymaker, who, as you guys probably, I'm not a big fan of his. Um, the only way you're going to see one is the only way you're going to see if you're hunting a deer or something like that is still hunting. Um, and in Texas, the western cougar mountain lion is considered a nuisance animal. You can hunt them year-round. The only way you're going to see one, sit down with your back to a tree and sit there. Don't smoke. Don't move around. Don't eat a candy bar. You sit there. When you see the other animals moving around you, then you might see a Sasquatch. But going in there at night, turning the flashlights on and turning on portable radios and talking on them and giving vocalizations and all that stuff, you, you notice that not only did they not ever see a Sasquatch, they don't ever see any other large mammal. They don't see anything. That's right. Yeah. And I talked to Dr. Meldrum about that, you know, and, uh, you know, as far as vocalizations, uh, I, I told Tom, uh, 
we know from uh, the Smithsonian Tropical Institute in Panama, they studied all the different kinds of uh, uh, monkeys down there. The howler monkey has a large hyoid bone, the, spelled H-Y-O-I-D. And so they can vocalize. They're supposed to be the loudest or second loudest animal in the world behind an African male lion. But it's Dr. Meldrum's theory that the hyoid bone is well-developed in a Sasquatch. So you could probably hear them howl from two, 3,000 meters away. And so, but that's not really the point. The point is that they can give different vocalizations. Like the howler monkeys in Panama, if they see a jaguar on the ground, they're, they're up in the arboretum. They'll give one warning, like a clucking noise. If they see a giant harp eagle coming for them, they'll start squealing or screaming. And you can hear them from a long ways away. So we know when they talk about vocalizations of the Sasquatch, I'm pretty sure that they could make a dozen different vocalizations. Yeah, the, I think they know the difference between somebody going out in the woods and making a bunch of howls, and they'll know this is this isn't my group. Yeah, and and so you know you you think about it, they have to be incredibly strong because you know I've talked about how strong a chimpanzee is. Uh, they had one in a zoo in Cincinnati, and he had gotten a case of alopecia, which means uh, hair loss on the body. If you ever saw that chimpanzee without the hair covering his body, you'd be amazed at the size of their biceps and triceps and latissimus dorsi and all that. They're incredibly strong. And you and I talked about the case of that. I think she's a female lawyer. Yeah. And the lady that came to visit her had seen the chimpanzee many times, but the day before she dyed her hair a different color, was wearing a different type of perfume, and it just set the chimpanzee off and I think that lady wound up appearing on Oprah later, but chimpanzees are incredibly strong. Yeah, I think they're will. You mentioned they're easily four to five times stronger than a full-grown man, large size, you know, six-foot man. Right. Yeah, uh, they. Uh, when you talk about feral cats like the jaguar or the leopard, and I think the jaguar is, is the most powerful feral cat behind a Siberian tiger. There's, there's videos on YouTube of a 150-pound jaguar after it kills a 180-pound, 200-pound gazelle, a reebok. They climb the tree with the animal in its jaws, and they lodge it between two, two forks of the limbs because they don't want the hyenas to get it. Imagine how strong they are. Yeah, and even the mountain lions can't do that. They, as far as I know, they don't do that. No, but we see we see more and more cases of as you know California, the northern part of San Diego, is encroaching up into the mountains. There, we see more and more cases of mountain lions stalking and actually killing people. Do you know the the three girls that I know of the cases? They were jogging down a trail when a feral animal sees you running away like that. They're going to attack you. You know, so. Um, it's, it's nothing to joke with, you know. So translate that to the Sasquatch, their size and their body weight, 
they they have to be incredibly strong, you know. So, um, and there's stories of them stepping over a five foot high barbed wire fence. Um, yeah, even higher. We have, we have a guy that we uh, let's see. We just talked to him in um, Ohio, and he said the fence went up to his chin or chest. I think up to his chest. And it's either a deputy or a DNR officer saw this thing, just put its hand down, it put the uh, barbed wire down and just stepped over it. Yeah, the, the sighting I had, I remember the hands, how huge they were. And I'm pretty sure it had uh, four fingers and, and the thumb. But I, I can't say exactly, but, uh, you know, there's, there's prints out there that suggest they only have three fingers and... An opposing thumb, uh, which gives yeah. Them, it, well, it could be just the little finger didn't get registered or whatever. Right. That, that, that's exactly right. So they have what's called the prehensile ability. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. With an opposing thumb to grab uh, things, and they're just incredibly strong. You know. Um, so um, you had mentioned. Earlier, the the Texas Southwest Primate Center there. I was just going to ask, yeah. I don't, I think that what they do out there mostly is uh, they test primates for exposure to different diseases to see if they have the ability to contract or transmit, more importantly, transmit a disease to humans. So we know that when HIV became widespread that it came from primates, right? Okay. I did not know that. Okay. Well, I'm not saying that for, for, for sure, but I think if you read up on it, Will, um, and these days we talk about gain of function. That's a fancy name for saying, how can we tweak this virus so that primates can transmit it to humans? Yeah. Let me ask you this. You know, their DNA is very, very closely related to humans. Yeah, I think it's like within three or four percent. The Primate Center, what is the connection, if any, that you know of between Tom Slick and the uh, and the Primate Center? I think Tom Slick financed two or three trips in the Himalayas after he saw the I think the first tracks were detected in 1968. And I think Tom Slip became fascinated with that. But um, there's another guy on YouTube um, that compares. He does a comparative anatomy of the PG film with other um, false uh, imitations of the PG film. But I can't remember his name offhand, but uh, Tom Slick was a pretty wealthy uh, Houston oil man, oil business. And uh, he told that he, you know, at one time he offered three or four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand dollars to anybody that could credibly re- reproduce the Patterson Gimlin film. So Bob Hieronymus, I'm sure both you guys are familiar with him, correct? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. So Bob Hieronymus passed a polygraph which you know i talked about you know 
the polygraph, you can fool it. We call it the box. It's now if you can slow down your respiration and control your sweat glands, uh, you can pass the box. But based on that, I was told. I, that, I've yeah. I've actually heard it's it's nothing more than junk science. It is junk science. So yeah. yeah, a few years ago, it was declared invalid. Like you know, um, when you apply for a law enforcement job these days, they used to give you the polygraph, and then if they thought you weren't telling the truth, they'd give it to you and over and over. But uh, many state courts have ruled on this. It's not a reliable truth teller. It's kind of like voodoo magic. Uh, in fact, I've had polygraph examiners tell me that, look, before I even put the guy on the box, he's nervous or his hands are shaking, then I know he's lying already. <laughs> but Bob Hieronymus described the, the PG film. He said, he wore the suit and he said it was a two-piece uh, hide made out of reddish horsehair. So you, you can look this up on the internet. Um, they, the BBC knocked out a, a replica of it, and it looks nothing like the PG film. Nothing. Well, nothing really does. I mean, the PG film's got all the muscles. It's, it's, and the reason it that nobody's able to duplicate it is because the PG film is an actual creature versus somebody trying to uh, mimic. Hey, fellas. You know, to... you know, when we had Bill Munns on the show, he brought up a really good point. Uh, the reason that Hieronymus passed most likely is he did wear a suit because Patterson was going to make a film. And True. the one thing about people wearing a suit is they don't see themselves. So when he saw the Patterson film, he probably thought that was him, but it wasn't. It was actually another piece of film that was never aired and lost. Yeah, that's very. That's a very possible conclusion. Um, but I mean, uh, as I told Tom, um, I had the opportunity one time. Most people that see the PG film don't realize they're looking at a copy of a copy of a dozen copies. When NASA got a hold of the film, they have the most powerful cameras in the world. They stabilized the film. Um, you can see the the deltoid muscles, the latissimus dorsi, the quadriceps. Um, you can see the way it walks, where it doesn't lock its legs out. It has a non-compliant gait. But the thing that got me, I didn't. I'd watch it ten times before. Doctor Ramos said, "Look when it's walking on that sandbar. It's sinking its feet like three or four inches deep in the sand. It weighs a lot." And so uh, I mentioned, Tom, you remember me at, uh, speaking to you about Jonas Prohaska, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he was the go-to guy in the 60s for Planet of the Apes and a bunch of other, you know, uh, now they call it animatronics. You concoct a big fake boa constrictor or whatever animal. But when Planet of the Apes was all the fashion, and he looked at the film the first edition of it. And they said, what do you think? He goes, let me watch it again. And he watched it again. And he sat there and he ran some parts of it back. And he said that, see, the PG film was in 67 or 68, correct? Yeah, 67. Yeah. Okay. So his conclusion was that you'd have to have a latex suit that fitted a man perfectly that was about seven feet tall and weighed about 400 pounds. But that wouldn't even be good enough unless you glued each individual hair onto the suit because 
if you just covered it with a mass of glued on hair, you wouldn't see the muscular definition. So, you know, he watched it and he said, you know, that nowadays they have prosthetic padding, which kind of resembles uh, muscle groups, but they didn't have that back then. And they did not have uh, prosthetic suits like that, late, skin tight latex suits. And Tom, you're familiar with that guy that sold novelty gags and suits. Uh, I think his last name was Marks in Chicago. Right. I, I think I've heard of him. Yeah. But even yeah. even those prosthetic suits can't mimic the real thing. Well, we know from the, the prints that were cast right there on Bluff Creek. And I don't think Hieronymus knew that when I want to say that NASA interviewed him, you know, because they're like super scientists or whatever. When they started talking to him about the dermal ridges and the footprints and the mid-tarsal flex of the feet of this thing, he didn't have a clue what they were talking about. He didn't know anything about that. So, uh, you know, that that's just one more uh, addition to the story there. Uh, right, yeah, he, he wouldn't have known about it. Yeah, the guy because you the in Northern California that cut the big wooden footprints out of plywood and Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dr. Meldrum did a number on that years ago. He said, well, you know, that, yeah, I, I could do that. And that's exactly what it looked like a bunch of fake wooden uh, footprints, you know. Um, so there is another guy, um, Jimmy Chilcutt, I mentioned to you. He lives in East Texas. He's the probably the most renowned fingerprint expert. In the United States, he's regularly called as expert witness, the FBI, like that. He got interested in it, and he started taking the prints of bipedal primates and all that stuff, you know, or quadrupedal primates. There, there's no way you, you you'd have to be a really sophisticated uh, anatomist to fake these prints of the feet, uh, because you know they have pressure ridges. You know what delta ridges are like you have if you look at your fingerprints real close? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. So the delta ridges, if you look at them in bright light, they're very obvious. You know, you, 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 know, you wonder why when babies are born, they take their footprint instead of their fingerprints. They're born with delta ridges prints. You don't get them mixed up in the hospital. But uh, Jimmy Chilka was, he said, we, he was absolutely convinced we have an unknown primate in North America. Um, so, you know, you take that for what it's worth. Oh, no, that, that's very good. Well, listen, I think we're we're starting to run a little bit short on time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm no, no, no. I hear what you guys have to, some feedback, you know. Well, um, actually, you, you brought up some really interesting points and with uh, Ben Lilly uh, and especially with the, you know, with the, uh, encounter that you had in Louisiana is absolutely fantastic. And they're there. We've heard a lot of them in, in that, in well, Louisiana and Georgia, uh, up into Tennessee and, and uh, all around the Southeast. So um, I really appreciate you coming on and we're definitely going to have you back again in the future. Well, it was definitely a pleasure to talk to you guys, you know, and it's really a pleasure to talk to guys that say, 
so oh yeah uh, well i think we're i think we're a bit beyond it maybe it exists we uh will see them and i got a glimpse and and so yeah they're they're out there yeah you know let's stay in touch and you guys feel free to call me back and if you get anything i'd love to hear from you okay you, well, you will. Absolutely. You bet, right. James. We Good sure, sure appreciate guys, it. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you guys. I'm, I'm out here. All right. Thank you, now. Hello, everyone. I'm speaking with Troy today. Troy, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. It's wet here today, though. I'm feeling a little soggy. Yeah, yeah. It's it's raining here too, man. <laughs> well, listen. This is pretty much uh, the microphone is yours. Just uh, start me off at the beginning. You know, kind of what you were doing when things began for the first time, and and kind of lead me into the situation. Right. Okay. Well, I was in I was in high school. I was going into my senior year in high school. It's probably yeah, ninety eight, ninety nine. Um, it was it was before, you know, the the internet really exploded. I mean, we we had the old dial up internet and everything, but it, it was before. You know, all you see on TV was maybe a, an old Leonard Nimoy in search of or something, mm-hmm. you know, like that. So <clears throat> we we always uh, I grew up in uh, in rural southern West Virginia in the coal fields. And uh, all we did pretty much was was hunting fish, all the time. That, that's all we ever did, and uh, spent my whole life in the woods, and never seen anything that scared me. You know, um, been I, I don't know if you know what what ramps are or not, but but in Appalachia, a ramp is like a uh, it's a really really strong uh, wild onion almost a, a garlicky deal okay. and you know we um i've been in the woods before it you know getting really late and been been surrounded by by coyotes and, you know that, that'll freak you out a little bit so you know i know i know what they sound like you know i, I know know all the animals in the woods but uh <clears throat> this particular summer we were uh we were fishing in an area called little clear creek it's uh it's way back back in the cut as we say but uh it's miles and miles away from from anywhere and uh it had been we've been fishing all day since way early in the morning and uh pretty much we'd gotten bored we weren't catching anything my little brother he's oh he never quits He's always, always after it. Whether he's catching anything or not, he's always after it. But we get in, get down into this, uh, this bend in the creek. And, and when I say creek, I mean a little tiny mountain stream. It, it's not fast moving water or, you know, big. It, it's probably 15, 20 feet across max sure. in the widest, widest places. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> Me and my my buddy, uh, I, you know, I can't. I don't want to say any names. He's pretty successful back home, and I, don't, you know, I don't want to drag him into it. But uh, no, that's he. Uh, we were setting, we were <clears throat> setting in the water, kind of just up to our setting, setting down up to our, you know, chest, 
my little brother's on the uh, the bank. He's tying a lure on, and uh, we're we're screwing around a little bit, and splashing around and stuff. And we hear something just rip off the side of the mountain. You know, <laughs> it it would it wasn't trying to be quiet at all. It was just tearing like like it was breaking stuff as it came down. And uh, there was a high wall on the side of the the river bank that we were almost setting up against. And we couldn't see up the hill. It was a big mountain that kind of comes down into this hollow that the, the creek runs through. And we, like, we're kind of like, you know, what is that? <clears throat> and we start hearing this, this god-awful screaming. I don't know if uh, it, if you know what I'm talking about. It, it sounds like, a, it sounded like a, a man kind of screaming to the top of his lungs mixed with like a roar. Yeah. I mean, you can feel it, feel it in your chest. And, uh, that instantly kind of like, what, what in the hell could that be? And we look up at my brother and he is just frozen, just, you know, solid white. Like, and he's looking up on top of the high wall and, uh, about this time, we we see his eyes like look straight up in the air, and this huge rock. I mean, the rock is probably about the size of a briefcase or something. A big flat rock mm-hmm. just came and smacked right in between me and my friend. And uh, and then this this tree is <laughs> a big poplar tree, probably. You know, I always you know I say as big around as a basketball, but it probably wasn't that big. But it was a big tree nonetheless, and it starts just just swaying back and forth very, very violently. And uh, we, at that point, we ran out of the water and stopped and turned around and looked. And uh, <laughs> there is this... Uh, I've, uh, the only thing that I can say to describe it is there was a monster standing there, you know, and I know it might sound, you know, childish for somebody to say monster, but that's exactly what we were looking at all my life. You know, I've been led to believe that you know, there's no no such thing as monsters, but you know, lo and behold, here we are. We're staring at at this thing. It's it's standing upright on two legs. It's not, you know, it's not ten feet tall. It's mm-hmm. probably six and a half feet tall, maybe maybe seven feet. And, but the, the sheer size of this thing was, it was enormous. It had to have weighed, you know, every bit of four or 500 pounds, enormous. Wow. And it stretched its arms way out. Like, uh, have you ever, have you seen somebody like getting a fight or something and they kind of, you know, hit their chest, you know, like say like, come on, come on, you know? Yeah, um, right. This thing, this thing slaps its chest and then it gets down almost in like a, like a linebacker stance and, and uh, jumps at us and slides to a stop on all fours. And then from that point, it just went absolutely crazy. It was treading everything it could get its hands on, tearing at the earth and just, just going nuts. Now, it never turned its back on us, mm-hmm. but it was putting on a huge show and screaming the whole time. It, we were all, we were petrified. We were froze. We couldn't move. Um, and it, I mean, it, 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 it jumped around and screamed 
the the scream that the noises that this thing made are just you know never have I ever heard anything that I can even compare it to and the look in this thing uh it meant business if there's no doubt in my mind it could it could have easily you know crossed that little creek and tore us to shreds good um but it didn't right it i mean it it just stayed on that side of the bank but you know obviously it was trying to you know scare us off and it it did it did that it did the trick I was uh, I was actually talking to my my brother about it just recently, and uh, asking him if if he could remember, you know, what what all he could remember about it, and he he remembered the same same details as I did. That it had a very leathery type face. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was covered in hair. Uh, it the only part of its body that didn't have really any hair on it was its face, um, but the what stuck out the most, and, and and even he said when I was talking to him about it, he said, "Do you remember the nose on that thing?" I said, "Yeah, man. Yeah, I remember the nose. The nostrils on this thing were were huge. Now I don't know if it was flaring its nostrils out, or if they're the nostrils are always that big, mm-hmm. but it looked like." Like you have a, how a pig's snout is, how large the nostrils are. Right. That's what. That's what. Uh, the only thing that we could compare it to was the snout of a pig. But don't get me wrong; it, it didn't look anything like a pig in the face. Right. It. Uh, it had the anatomy of a man. You know, uh, proportionately, it had the anatomy of a man. Now, it had very, very long arms. Mm-hmm. Um, Longer than what a man would be. Oh yes, sir. Yes, definitely. And uh, the the thickness. The, this thing was was so thick that uh, you know it's, it 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 blew our minds. Now, <clears throat> we've been in our wood, the woods our whole life. We know what a black bear looks like. You know, and the the only thing that you know that in in that neck of the woods that could possibly you know even come close to being that size would be a. a a black bear, which is nowhere. I mean, not to mention the behavior. I mean, a bear. A bear. I've never seen a bear throw a tantrum like that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, most of the time, uh, uh, well, ten times, ten out of ten times, you're going. A black bear is going to run from you. They're going to, they're going to get as far away from you as possible. And matter of fact, uh, any animal in the woods, at least where I'm from. Uh, any wild animal is going to put as much distance between themselves and you as possible. I've never had anything come at me in the woods. You know, I've been deer hunting and have have a deer come at me, but they didn't know I was there. But, the, you know, in the minute that they seen me, they were gone. This thing knew we were there, and it was coming to... Sh- to, do, you to remember, do you remember, sorry, do you remember about what time of day this was? Yeah, it was right. It was right before, right before dusk. You know, it was uh, it was probably about an hour before the sun had went down fully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because we were we were getting ready to to head out, and it was quite a long walk out. Um, so it, it was right right before dusk, and <laughs> we left all of our all of our tackle up there. Now the my boat? brother actually. Uh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
I, I was just going to ask. Oh, uh, bro. oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I just had a quick question. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, it's, it's a fascinating story. I, I want to hear what you have to say, but I had a question. Um, when you heard the vocals, were they coming from the same direction as all this noise, the brush being torn up, coming at you guys? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was coming from right off the top of the hill. Oh, yeah, okay. it, it was coming from, from the same direction, absolutely. I, I was just trying um, to get an idea if there was just one or, or more than one. You know, we've, we've talked about that, and the only thing we saw was one. We I didn't see another or hear another. We just we just saw the one. But, of course, it was, it was throwing such a fit that every bit of attention we had was focused solely on on that i mean yeah. there could have something could have walked right up behind us and we wouldn't have known it now just for <laughs> because quick, yeah just quick clarification I, it was you the creek was between you and the creature correct yes sir okay. yeah and it was okay. uh, about you know about about 20 feet at the max between wow. us after we got out of the water before we got out of the water it couldn't have been more than 10 feet that, that's not uh, much comfort is it no, it, and it, you know, but but for us, we we could see the look on my brother's face that there was, you know, a high wall there, and we couldn't see up and over the high wall. Yeah. Um, but we knew there was something there because my brother, he was just terrified. He was terrified, and actually, when when we ended up peeling out of there, he was in the process of tying a spinner on on his line, and he took off and had that spinner in his hand, and. uh he ran, and that, that, that spinner dug into the meat of his hand, and we ran until the lines, uh, I guess he had the bell open on his, uh, on his, fishing, on his fishing rod, mm -hmm. and uh, when that, that line ran out and, and caught, it snapped the line, because when we got back to the truck, we had to, uh, we just, you know, clipped the axe, you know, 30 yards of fishing line on the end of you know that he he drug and uh, the the treble hook was dug way into his hand. We had to you know clip it out with pliers. Good lord! But of course, we didn't worry about doing any of that until we were off that mountain. Yeah, I think but, I would have uh, dropped everything too and ran. Yeah, we never went. We never went back. Never went back to get it. Um, you know, I, I've been been back on that mountain you know since then but i never never had uh i mean i was i was curious but there was no way you couldn't pay me to go back to that spot no way and i you know i know that that whatever that was is you know all over that i mean it's not just sitting in that one spot but that right. <laughs> there is no way whatever we got i don't know if we just got too close to he was he was defending something you know he didn't want us anywhere near there i don't know if that you know obviously if there's one there's more you know he's yeah. not just just the the only animal of that type and i say animal because this thing was you'll hear people say that you know it was it was too human like it looked like you know no, this thing this thing was an animal i mean it was it was crazy territorial flat out animal and 
I, there's not a doubt in my mind that, that if we'd have stuck around there and pushed it, it would it would have killed us without hesitation. Yeah, that's quite a display. I mean, I, I've re- interviewed people with a lot of different displays, and that's I got to say one of the more violent sounding ones. Oh well, yeah, me and my brother were talking, and we <laughs> he he mentioned he said you know. All, all these people who want to want to go out in the woods and, and try to find one and you know feed them apples and be their yeah. buddy. He's like, yeah. that's that's crazy. He says, let them let them go ahead. That if they if they ever ever saw what we did, uh, they they would drop that that idea pretty darn quick. Yeah, that's I, I, in my opinion, that's a pretty silly approach to any kind of wild creature. Yeah, I mean these things are definitely the. From what I've seen, they're definitely more. I don't know if there's. I mean, they, of course they they're probably very high, highly intelligent, but they're they're no doubt they're an animal. Yeah, and there there's no. You hear people talk about, you know, the the maybe mystical powers that they have, or, <laughs> or you know, psychic power baloney, man. Yeah. That just. That, yeah, I think people just get so scared when they see something like this that they 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 think that 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 maybe that uh, that could be an explanation for for what's happened. But sure, I think it depends you know, it, on on how they're predisposed, you know, to looking at the world. But and there's also a lot of people that make those statements that have never actually seen one of these things. They tell people they have. Right. I don't believe it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's a 100 percent flesh and blood there. Yeah, just the same as a bear is. But uh, you know, I think that they're they're just so adept, they're so in tune and used to you know staying away from. Uh, you know, I, I can imagine that that man would be the the only the only uh, enemy that they could have in the wild. You know, their biggest threat. Sure, and, absolutely. Uh, these 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 dudes are. <laughs> They're they're masters, masters of the woods. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. When it's just, you know, it, it's, people say that you know, oh geez, you know, we've known about them you know, for five, six decades publicly, you know, on a large scale. So how come you know we haven't gotten closer and and yada yada yada? They don't understand that something that doesn't want human contact, except in in the situation like you were in, uh, and even my own encounters. Um, you know, were these kind of chance situations, and thankfully mine wasn't like yours. <laughs> I think I would have wet myself. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, but you know, if you know, they're either going to put on a display, they're going to take off quickly, or if they're there, there's a reason they're there in close contact with people. It's not, you know, they're not unaware of people being around. That's for certain. Oh yeah, I mean absolutely. It's not like that. We were we were in uncharted territory you know someplace where no human has ever set foot before i mean there's coal mines up there and, and they have coal trucks you know running in and out of there all the time but but we were back you know off the road and mm-hmm. and, and pretty deep into the mountain and uh and, and whatever whatever we were messing around whatever we were getting close to uh I don't know if we just happened on where he was at right then. He was in a bad mood or what, and he, you know, he 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 made made sure that uh, he ran us out of there. You know, you know there, these, there's no doubt about that. 
these things typically start feeding about that time right around plus or minus an hour before sunset and sunrise um, and a lot of times what happens is you'll run into a sentry and a lot of primates you know large sentry uh, you know, like a like a lookout? Yeah, kind of like a lookout. You know, while the rest of the group is off in an area feeding, uh, and this is very common among primates, you know, to use a sentry to alert the rest of the group of approaching danger. And humans definitely pose a threat to these guys, so um, <laughs> sounds like you encountered one that was very aggressive when it came to uh, alerting the rest of the group and making certain that you guys didn't go any further than that creek. Yeah, right. Now we we talked about that. Like you know, um, if uh, if there had only been one of us up there that that seen this, would it have made any difference that there was only one of us as opposed to being three of us there? Could have been or, a real problem, uh, you <laughs> know, because it, it, a one in a one-on-one situation. But see, with these guys, it's kind of a numbers game. If there are more of you than them. Uh, you might get a display like in your situation they might just take off if it's a closer match in numbers they might tend to be more aggressive it's it, it has happened on occasion so it just really depends on the disposition and then what's going on you're not you don't really see what's going on behind that creature you know that's uh sort of the you know reason for that kind of behavior that it's exhibiting yeah that uh and like uh, I was also thinking, like uh, the the size difference. I know in in the the Pacific Northwest, Northwest, you you hear people's encounters, and they're just being like, you know, ten, twelve, you know, ten feet tall and a thousand yeah. pounds. I mean, this this thing wasn't wasn't no no small guy by any means. Um, it was uh, <laughs> it was it was still enormous it just just in 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 is how as, as far as how thick this thing was i mean mm -hmm. and it, it had I, i've said this before and it, it almost it didn't have a a pot belly but it had a big a bigger stomach like uh mm -hmm. like uh i don't even really know how to explain it it's just like a like a look like a tree stump you know yeah well, one thing to remember, too, is, and it's something a lot of people don't know, is there are more than one variety of these things. In the Northwest, yeah, was... you have one one type. In your part of the country, there's typically the another type. Right. Now, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've wondered about that. What is the, how do, how are the classifications? Is it, is it all size, or is it, you know, is it behavior, or is, is there four, I've heard four types? Right. I I have I have contacts who did and do work for the government that are involved in this stuff. And I'm going to be doing a book uh, probably next year as I get more information from my sources. But what I was told by people who were who have dealt directly with these things um, was that there are four, maybe even a fifth variety and a lot of that is like even with you know other animal populations and even human populations is if a breeding pool is separated from the rest of a species you're going to get differences uh that's how you know that's how you get right. you know subspecies of groups <clears throat> the two there are two major groupings with these things um one is kind of like what you see in the patterson film uh 
the and the real distinguishing feature is the teeth you know in what you see in the Patterson film doesn't have canines the other major right. the other major grouping does have large canines which is actually and again it's another um, uh, it's a feature you see in large primates and most primates actually have large canines so it's not out of the I question can, that one would that one species would have something like that. I can tell you this: we got a, a very good look at his, his mouth, and he he had he had a good set of teeth on him. Did, did now, he have larger, you know, they weren't. Did he have upper and lower yes, canines? Sir. Large canines. Yes, it it, it looked like uh, on the on the bottom part, and also something that I discussed you know, just recently with my brother. You know, just going back over everything with him, trying to. You know, um, to try to jog our memories, but, but we both did specifically remember that it seemed like on the lower left-hand side of this thing's uh, mouth, it was missing several teeth on the lower left-hand part of the face. Um, it had uh, canines on the, the the two top canines and one on the bottom, but okay. the, the the left side of his face, he was missing teeth out of the bottom on the left side. And he was, you know, it, this thing was peeling his lips back. And, and I say he because, uh, I keep saying he because it was most definitely a he. I, I, just, um, I was just going to ask you if, it, if at any time it pulled its lips back, bearing its teeth at you. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and it was, it, it, its mouth was so big that it, it looked like it could easily have just fit our head in its mouth. In, in you know, Easily. In anthropology circles, they call that a lip flip. Uh, it's it's a direct challenge when they pull their teeth back, showing showing the canines. Oh man, oh, it definitely uh, we, yeah, it definitely uh, scared the heck out of us because it you know you, you, when you see a dog snarling and stuff like that, you you know it means business and and just the the guttural growls and just the 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 horrific noise that this thing was making uh on top of peeling his lips back like that to to show his teeth and and we could see you know you see his tongue we could see everything and and you said he grabbed he grabbed everything within reach and was what what was he doing with that material throwing it throwing it in the air ripping it down any kind of little saplings he was grabbing hold of he was just mm-hmm. ripping them throwing them up over his head behind him i mean he was just he was in and destroy everything mode yeah yeah he was even he was even grabbing hand handfuls of earth and and throwing it up in the air and uh and 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 hopping hopping around jumping around See, and again, you that's, know, that's uh, a very primate-type behavior when it comes to a territorial display. Yeah, this thing was... It, it, came, to, it came down the mountain. My brother seen it coming down the mountain. Uh, again, me and my friend didn't see it coming down the mountain, but he said he seen it coming down the mountain, and he said it was running on two legs just like a, just like a man would. Mm-hmm. And when he was in the middle of throwing its, its fit, it was crouched down, but it, it it also stood up and stretched his arms out and and looked like it puffed its chest out. Just as, as it was like he was making himself as big as he could possibly be with exactly. his arms outstretched. Which is and uh, which is a do- it, it's, it's a enormous. Dominance. Yeah, it's a dominant display. There, uh, you know, it's it's just like 
uh, with humans, you know, they say like if you encounter a bear or something, you try to make yourself look as big as you can uh, to establish right. you know, who's tougher, basically. Yeah, and I, I, I told you, I, I mentioned that I, I kept saying he, I kept referring to it as a, a he because there was, there was obviously, mm-hmm. you know, we obviously saw male genitalia. Now, you would think that something this size would uh would would have a pretty you know pretty large set on him you know mm-hmm. um it, it like like a like a man would generally like a, a great big man you would think would would be bigger um but but it proportionately it was it wasn't you know it wasn't 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 very big you know well and typically it was obvious that, yeah if you go back into it with wild creatures humans are the only exception to that rule when you look at other other primate species, uh, their genitalia really? is typically small. No, I mean we we joked about that after the fact, you know, um, you know, being 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 kids. Uh, of course, we we didn't have anything funny to say when we were right there, but no, you but, you, you know, wouldn't want to embarrass him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, piss him off real good. Um, but yeah, we uh, we talked about that after afterwards and. Uh, there was no doubt that that it was definitely a male, but it was uh, not not what you would not what what you would expect, you know, for any anybody that would just you know be thinking about uh, uh, this species. It's it was it was surprising, honestly. It was that 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 might have been, you know, it was something that that we go back and talk about how uh, we were so close that we could see, you know, almost every, we could see the color of the inside of the mouth. Yeah. We could see everything. And, uh, it, I mean, this thing didn't have like, like silky smooth hair. And yeah. it, I mean, it was, it was a dirty animal. It was, it, it, I won't say mangy because it didn't look, you know, it, it had pretty consistent, you know, pretty consistent hair all over its body, but it was, you know, it was it was littered with you know debris and mat. It it was matted. You know, t- like you would expect something yeah. that, that that lived in the wilderness would be. Um, the first, it was it was just. Yeah, the first two that I I'm saw sorry. were were exactly the same way. They were, you know, I, I remember all the debris from you know forest debris, parts of leaves, little twigs, things like that, and it was kind of matted, dirty looking. The first two. How many of you actually saw? total of three two three two the first wow. time one the third time or one the second time oh man where how old were you i was 16 the first time oh okay you're about the same age <laughs> as me then and and it was Ooh. about the same distance away that you were oh my gosh but you, you say it did did it did it carry on like like the one that i no I actually did? it was it was i come through the tree line uh, through some low-hanging limbs and into a clearing, and here this thing was—it was just kind of standing there, uh, moving some leaves around with its right foot. And when it saw me, it stopped and just kind of stared at me. And I thought okay. it was—it was moving leaves around with its foot. Yeah, huh. almost like it was kind of casually looking for just, something, but. Uh, wow, you know. just, just tooling around with its foot. That, that's and interesting. I, <laughs> and, I, and I had had a twenty-two rifle in my hands, and I just thought. Oh crap! Oh no! <laughs> What's this? Yeah. And I ended up shooting in the air just to hopefully scare it away or, or what something, and then 
it just it continued to stand oh, yeah. and look at me, and then I heard another one come around from my my right rear, or from some brush. Oh and, my god! And then it was time to leave. So <laughs> you saw you saw that one too. Oh yeah, yeah. It walked over and stood oh, by the first my. one. The uh, gunshot didn't didn't spook him or at all, huh? No, nah, well, no, <laughs> it didn't seem to. My gosh! I mean, if I'd if I'd have had if I'd have had a, a a rifle or anything, I, I, I to be honest with you, I probably wouldn't have shot this thing. It was so damn scary. I'd have been afraid. I would have I would have pissed it off. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I always wonder if I especially had my... if I'd have had a twenty two. Oh my, that's ooh, that'd have probably been a mistake. I, I to, always to think, fire at something like that. Oh no doubt. I always think if I if I had my hunting rifle or my twelve gauge shotgun, if I would have shot and I. I, I kind of think I wouldn't because, you know, that's that's kind of a scary situation. The first time you see something like that, uh, you know, the only thing that was going through my mind is, you know, what the hell is this, and and a, and a whole lot of fear yeah. behind that. So, my goodness, yeah. And then the the, the like I, like I was telling my my brother, like you know, if there's there's one of these things, there had to have been more. And and you you would think, you know. You know, just just seeing how like like the the great apes and stuff operate. They're not they're not learners. They they're always you know either in a like a, a family group or something like that. Right. If you, if you were to actually shoot one of these things, I think you'd be and, in trouble. And, and oh my goodness, oh I wonder I wonder if there's any. I haven't you know done nearly the research you have, but I wonder if there's any any document documented cases where somebody's actually shot one and and i like actually dropped it and had that happen where, where others had have have I'll come look, out then that, that, we'll, we'll we'll chat off air sometime about all that there there's some inf- information i can tell you oh okay yeah that that would be great that would be, that'd be terrifying oh my <laughs> goodness wow yeah, that that would be terrifying. I can't imagine, but I, I know that uh, uh, I, my, I have an uncle that that uh, still to this day still lives up in the area. And when I first told him about it, um, it was probably you know that within the the same week that that we that we'd seen it. I told him about it, and of course he was. You know, my dad's brother, he'd give me a hard time, and you call me an idiot and <laughs> laugh at me and make fun of me. And uh, I, I left and went to college and, and came back one weekend, and uh, and uh, he was at the house. He, he worked with my dad, and he pulled me over to the side, and he said, do you remember what you told me about seeing up, the, you know, seeing up there on the creek? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, you know, here it comes again. He's getting ready to lay into me with some more, you know, and he's like, he's like, he's like, I didn't believe you at the time. He said, but uh, he said, I'm sorry for making fun of you. I really am. I tried to get him to elaborate on it, but he wouldn't say much except that uh, he had seen something leaving his house uh, about 4 a.m. Uh, coming to work. He had seen something run across the road in front of him. Wow. And uh, he he said that. The only thing I could get him to tell me was that uh, it was, <laughs> he said, I know that some, nobody would be out there screwing around, you know, that that early in the morning with their kids. Yeah. So uh, w- whatever he was talking about, it, 
he, he had seen back there. He'd seen more than one, and he'd seen a big one and some little ones. Oh, is Or that a right? little one. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I got, that's what he said. You know, I, I can't, you know, I know that nobody would be up there screwing around that early in the morning with their kids. Yeah. And uh, it took me a minute to understand. I was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking? And, and he was almost too scared, you know, like almost that I was going to, turn around and start making fun of him about it, the way he did me but but he was he was terrified about it and uh he and still to this day he uh you know he lives back there quite a ways but um he won't go outside at, at night without being armed and he's got a totally new attitude about it totally new attitude it tends to yeah. change your outlook let me tell you oh man yeah you know, i'd spent my my entire life up to that point, you know, it was just that, you know, monsters aren't real, monsters aren't real. But, but when I seen when I seen that, you know, I, I still have nightmares about it. And uh, you know, my my wife, um, you know, the first time I told her about it, she, you know, she kind of laughed laughed about it. But, uh, but she doesn't she doesn't laugh about it anymore. She she uh, she knows that I take that very very seriously because, you know. That, 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 there, there's, there's no way that um, I, I would. I'm scared to death. I have three sons, and to, to think about them being, you know, I don't want them to miss out on on their childhood growing up in the outdoors, you know, and and things like that. But it just, it, it it's a whole new element to worry about. Yeah, that's you for know, sure. Yeah, you don't you don't want the your kids, kids to miss out on the outdoors. But then you think, geez, do I want to put them in that kind of a situation? Right, right, exactly, exactly, and you know, uh, you can't. I mean, you can't talk about it. People, people are going to think you're crazy. And then I, I'll talk to <clears throat> my wife. Would say, well, then why? How come if uh, you know, it in the beginning she's like, if these things are real, how come? Why do you know? How come the you, the government's always saying that they're not? And, and I was trying to, you know, what, think about how much money there is that they would have to lose mm-hmm. you know in, in the forest industry alone you know like like with uh endangered species and stuff that if if you think about it that could potentially shut down an entire an entire industry yeah there's some pretty big repercussions right in lawsuits i mean people and you know in natural and that uh, uh national parks and Mm-hmm. and things like that that i mean <laughs> it's a pretty big can of worms endless absolutely oh man absolutely yeah, it's hard to even hard to even think about but um you know you i wonder if the day will ever come whenever whenever they have to i'm sure it will eventually will they'll have have to admit you more, know more that, than likely. that uh the yeah it it, it's going to come, but I, I, you know, who knows when and how many times it's going to be, you know, tried to be covered up. And and what what really upsets me is the 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 mockery that that comes with, with especially people, the, the idiots, these people who say that they go out in the woods and that uh, <laughs> they have a troop of bigfoot right. out in the woods that they've been that they've been. Uh, you know, going out and visiting every weekend for the last ten years, and they they speak their own language. It's a 
it's just combination all, of clicks and grunts it's mixed all with facial expressions and sign language yeah uh, idiots man <laughs> oh there's there's every, there's no every form of you know weirdo out there there's even you know the new ones no i shouldn't say new ones but kind of the new i don't know if it's new or not i mean i i don't really pay attention to a lot of these uh you know wannabe bigfoot hunters or you know people that are get involved in this but really i know they don't have any experience with it they claim they do but they don't um like the bfro <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's the lately i've been hearing things you know some of the people calling them you know ghosts or demons and uh, just nonsense oh no you know they they don't yeah, have any like explanation that. themselves not any real explanation because they've never seen anything so these are the labels they try to use and and it's really kind of a distraction from the real stuff that's going on right right they call them an apparition or i've heard people say that they're they're actually demons and oh yeah you know fallen angels and and this and that I mean, these things are flesh and blood animals they are definitely animals. There's nothing magical about them. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, you, know, you can't you, you can't trample on like the the like a, a Native American's way of thinking. You know about them. You know they have to be respected. That sure. you have to respect a, a creature like this because if you don't, you're going to be in big trouble. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Big trouble, Jack. Yeah, it's a uh, it, it's a. Uh, I respect the, the the work you do. I mean. It's it's got to be intense being out there. Uh, I know you you do a lot of field research, and that that's that's got to be you know just so intense. I don't I don't know how you can keep going back and doing that after after seeing that. I keep saying monster because I keep falling back. To that I, word. I'm just, uh, I guess I'm just I, stubborn. <laughs> Yeah, you must be, man. I'm out there, my nose is to the ground. Oh, and speaking of that, you know, I've got a really excellent artist that I'd like to connect you with. He's doing some work for me on the different types. and I mean, I'll send you a couple examples of the work he's done. Uh, He can really do justice to what you saw. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I've I've looked around the Internet and I've tried to find the pictures of, you know, that would... That could relate to what I've seen, but but the only thing I can really do to to give it justice is like take a certain part of a certain picture, like the brow from this picture and mm-hmm. the jaw from this picture and the nose from this picture. Yeah, and it would have to be all switched, to, you know. But like you said, the the different the different species, I, I guess that that it comes with. I mean. There's not a doubt in my mind that some of these drawings that, that you you you'll find are, are accurate because I would I, honestly I probably would have made fun of somebody for you know for saying that they they saw something like that until until I I did and yeah. it's just it, I, it's unreal and I go ahead go ahead I think it's just kind of the way we're people are geared I mean I probably would have too had I not been I was 14 the first time I saw footprints. Uh, and then two years later, I actually ran into two of the three individuals we found footprints of. So, 
Um, wow. And people, you know, my family and everything made fun of us after just seeing footprints. And, and these were physical things on the ground that, that me, and, me and my friend, and uh, we found them and went to another of our friend's house, and his brothers and sisters and dad came out with us and took pictures and stuff. And and he told us, because we didn't, we didn't know. We never, never heard the word Bigfoot before then. And... Um, the fellow's dad came out with you guys. He did. Well, we we saw this. We found the we found these uh, footprints, and and it was on a line of railroad tracks. It was snow in the ground. Buddy came over for the weekend, and um, wasn't a whole lot to do with snow in the ground. So we figured, well, let's go to our other buddy's house who lived about a mile from me, and uh, we couldn't go through the trail through the woods because snow in the ground. We couldn't find the trail. So we decided to walk down the road and then hit the railroad tracks that went by my friend John's house. So we got almost to John's place through the stand of timber and we found some intestines lying between the rails. And there was no footprints anywhere. And we thought, well, how the heck did these get here? And it was too much for, you know, some bird to be flying over and dropped. And it it wasn't anything like that. It was, they were just kind of there. And, uh, if you were to picture this place, it was kind of on a, along the side of a hill. So to our left was the upside of the hill, and then to the right was the downside, and there was a kind of a crude fire access road on either side of this railroad line. And we could see there was nothing below us, nothing disturbed the snow, nothing the way we came. So I told my buddy Mark to go on ahead up the line to tracks, and I was going to climb the embankment to the left to get up on the other access road to see if there was anything up there. And as soon as I crested that... And it was, it was about 10 or 12 feet up, not real high. There was footprints everywhere, dozens of them. So I hollered for him to come up there, and we seen these big man-like footprints. Of course, they were, you know, twice the size of our feet easily. And we're just kind of looking at this thinking, you know, who the heck's got feet that big, number one, and who's out here walking around barefoot in sub-20-degree sub weather? And then, and so you were fourteen at that time. I was. We were fourteen, and it struck me that the intestines weren't frozen yet. It was only about seventeen degrees or so that morning, and they should have frozen oh, pretty mercy. quickly. So whatever <laughs> put them there was still pretty close. And we figured, you know, the culprit was whatever made these footprints. So we took off running. It scared the hell out of us. And we were up there no pounding, pounding on my buddy John's door, and you know, he had two two sisters and two younger brothers, and there was just pandemonium. All these kids. You know, once, and his dad come out of the back room, and he says, "Boys, boys, settle down. What's going on?" So we told him what we found. He grabbed a forty-five pistol and his camera, and he says, "Take me up there and show me what you found." So all of us went back up there, and then he proceeded. He took a bunch of pictures, told us afterwards what he it must have seen something on television. Uh, and again, back in nineteen seventy-two, there still wasn't a lot out there on the subject uh you know the patterson had been out about five years by then but it still wasn't really out a lot and and i I know in my case we didn't watch a lot of television we did some but it was you know kid stuff and my parents right right. you know so we we were outside most of the time we lived on farms and stuff we were out we weren't really sitting around watching tv so uh, when he told us that, you know, we were out looking every weekend, you know, looking for the monsters that were in the woods. Uh, <laughs> never, never saw anything again after that. But then, you know, two years later, it was just about, just about two years later. Um, you know, I had my. Encounter. You weren't even thinking about it at that, now, at that point. I, I was thinking, port, you know, skunk or raccoon, something like that. My dog was going crazy after something, so wasn't a skunk or a raccoon. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's uh, that's quite a surprise when you're looking for some, something like that. And yeah, ooh, gosh, that's a that's yeah, an so oh, you, that's an oh crap moment. <laughs> oh yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, Say so that that thing. He, he was he as surprised to see you as you were to see him. I I would imagine, yeah. He didn't. I don't think it was real happy. But you kind of just stared at each other. Did yeah, you, did it you was, get to look into his eyes? I I got I felt it was kind of a tense moment if if you know what I mean. Mhm. The uh the eyes that uh that I mean we made we made eye contact mm-hmm. with, with the this thing and and I we we talked about it afterwards and I don't remember seeing any whites at all. Right. Like any whites to the eyes at all. I don't know if that's that's you know something that that it, that you could expound on or anything, but I know that we were within when, when you're within twenty feet of something, you you're going to be able to see the whites of somebody's eyes. Yeah. And this thing just looked like it had big. I mean, the the the, eye, the eyeballs themselves were absolutely huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, huge. Right. And I don't I don't know if maybe that has something to do with uh, use for uh, you know night for for the nighttime or. Or mm-hmm. just something that the, they've you know um, come to you know it became adapted to you know having to see at, at, at night or you you said that they start feeding you know right before before dark you say and are typically they, they the pretty night, much yeah. they're so they're pretty much not not active during the day. Well, now they are they're equally active in daytime as night, but. Uh, a lot of their hunting activity seems to be at nighttime. Of course, a lot of times deer are out feeding at night, so you know if it's clear enough for them to see, they're going to feed at night. Right. Right now, uh, I've heard some of like like the the Sierra sounds and, and some of the 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 recordings of the the um, the noises, the screams that these things make, and mm-hmm. and uh, what I heard was uh, it, it it sounded like a it sounded like a like a, a man, you know, screaming as hard and as high as as he possibly could. But but, I mean, the the lung power that this thing would have had, you know, that it had to have on it. I mean, it it was enough to make your ears ring. And, Absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's there's no way to even compare that. That you, I mean, I can compare them to to you know the the audio that I've that I've heard from from the internet. But right. but being so close to this thing. Um, I don't know if there's anything to the the infrasound that you hear people talk about, yeah. but I can I can see just just the the just decibels the sheer volume. this thing, yeah, yeah the, just the the volume that the, this thing has behind it is is enough to 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 freeze you momentarily. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, I I don't know about the the infrasound whether you know it's enough to make people sick or. Or anything like that, but I know it's enough to to stun. It stunned us, and uh, I just you know you, you wouldn't think it's possible for something to be so damn loud. Well, when you look at the lung, it's, size it's of incredible. The lungs, the size of the animal, and then yeah. it's got to have huge lung capacity. So yeah, they're going to have some you know real volume behind them. I've heard some extremely loud vocals myself, and over the years I've done this and. Uh, there's one in particular that really stands out uh, from the Olympic Mountains. Uh, my girlfriend at that time and I 
took a little walk up the river after dinner again right at dusk and this thing cut loose on this ridge that divided the um, the North Fork and the Main Fork of the Quinault River and it was just I, it, like it, like you, what you described very similar uh, it was so loud uh, this long it was just a, a scream and it wasn't wasn't a scream like a mountain lion or anything like that it was nothing like that it would have been more it was a little deeper sound it's really difficult to describe it um, a friend of mine in Maine has been getting a lot of uh, recordings near his home of a, a group of these things that have been hanging around there and um, I, I can I can send you a few pieces of audio that he sent me and and you might oh yeah that'd be you great might find that interesting but he's got heard the same thing these very loud screams and uh, it, it's it, there's nothing really to compare it to because there's nothing else that sounds like it yeah it's like like you've heard the expression blood curdling a blood curdling scream or, or Absolutely. it's kind of like somebody somebody being murdered it's it's horrendous i mean yeah. uh, i mean i I've, I've you know woken up out of my sleep countless times hearing that and uh I, you know if i'd have never heard that noise i think i'd be better for it i mean i, I wouldn't take back that experience for anything but just just oh man yeah the, I mean, it, it, and you hear you hear stories about people actually being physically attacked by these things. The, the sheer trauma that would that would follow something like that. Oh my goodness, you could never sleep again. Some of the stories I've heard, and I'll tell you one, and everybody knows, you know, of course, about that knows about the subject knows about um, the legend of Boggy Creek. You know, the, right. they've seen the original film there was one sequence where there was uh, I, I think it was two couples and a, and a younger boy uh, and this thing reached through the window of the house you know and, and and a lot of that stuff really did happen when the guys went outside after that incident where it reached through the window and scared everybody uh, you know in the film it shows one guy kind of getting beat up a little bit and, they, and he's traumatized and goes to the hospital I have a friend who's a cop who knows that guy, the real individual. Um, oh, really? Who to this day refuses to talk to anybody about it publicly. But what he told me was, my cop buddies, um, that this thing actually w was still on the porch. And he happened to be bringing up the rear when the three guys went out. And uh, it, it mauled him. It knocked him down. And it actually, and he again you go back to look at what other primates think you know like chimps gorillas and such will do and if you look at what the way chimps do things with their hands like when they you'll see them do like a drum roll on something the ground or whatever they do it with the back of their hands and this thing this sasquatch it beat the hell out of this guy with the back of its hands and wow. it, it bruised him up pretty good uh but um you know, and, and another story, my same cop buddy, he's had a little access to some pretty interesting ones. And I've told this before, had him actually tell it before on the show, um, where one of his friends, uh, I guess, inadvertently angered this creature by spraying it. He was watering his tomatoes and the thing come by and he was shocked. You know, this thing's broad daylight, come walking by him and, and he's where he had his tomatoes and he sprayed it with the water hose and it took off running. Oh, no. Well, a few months later it came back. He was gone for a while 
and he was taking a nap and where he lived was so far out you know he didn't really lock his doors or anything and somehow this thing got the door open got in his house oh my god he woke up it was standing over him and as soon as it saw him open his eyes it pounced on him and proceeded to throw him around the room like a rag doll and then in the course and he was a big guy you know six two six four something like that um but threw him around like he was nothing and in the course of him fighting back somehow it got a whole it got his part of his hand in its mouth and bit one of his fingers off and oh and my gosh it was t- totally tore his house up i mean i i've heard some pretty amazing stories um I'm guessing that fellow moves. I mean, did he go back to? Did he go back and continue to live there? Well, actually, the government ended up buying his house from him, and and now it's gone. There's oh, no house that's convenient. Yeah. Okay. That's that's a whole uh, story in itself, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. But you know, like wow. with this violent behavior that you saw, it's not uncommon. It, I can tell you numerous stories that people told me with very similar kinds of behaviors yeah now so getting into your house that's that's uh that's that's, that's pretty a whole, scary <laughs> that's pretty scary oh yeah man. yeah it's uh that's a, a story i've heard about uh siege on uh, the siege of hanobi is that did i say that right right i i interviewed and, uh, i inter- interviewed the guy about his story that was uh it's interesting <laughs> my goodness I, I, I just I, I heard I heard I can't remember what I was listening to but I, I heard something something about how uh, he, that, that things were trying to get into his house or he had a, a had a, 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 a niece or something that it, it scared the hell out of and, and tried to get in his house and I, I can't remember exactly what I heard but I, something about them trying to get in his house yeah well there was they were and not just that situation there were a lot of them I have a lot of people that contact me uh, privately that don't ever want any kind of attention they just want help getting rid of the creatures Uh, and I can give you an example one guy and he had a young couple some little kids and this thing these things were coming right up to their windows and they kept you know staring at the kids at night and, and you know they were afraid for their lives and we eventually got rid of the creatures um, but you know they'll approach uh, e- even my friend Don in Maine with the ongoing situation I was telling about he's got uh, you know they'll place objects where you know his light sensors will trigger you know the lights come on and they kind of they kind of testing to see how close they can get and without being seen and things like that so they're not stupid i mean they you know they're, they're pretty highly they're pretty intelligent highly intelligent creatures of course all primates i've said this many times before are the smartest creatures on the planet everybody likes right. to compare dolphins and dogs and everything else to humans those animals are nowhere near as intelligent as primate species are and it's a huge gulf of difference Right, I mean the, the use of tools and and things like yeah. that. I mean, now, do uh, light lights? Uh, does lights? You know, you've heard you know campfires and stuff like that seem mm-hmm. to to keep them away. Are they they afraid of like spotlights type flashlights or? 
Well, you, you know, know it's, it's just depending. like people. There's there's some differences. You know, some are, some aren't. Um, you know, you're gonna. It depends on you how know, used in, to they are. Yeah, their their experience and and their temperament. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, it, there's so many different different variables. That, that, Absolutely. You know, make, <laughs> and, and it's it, it's so so frustrating to try to to get that across to somebody who just absolutely won't won't hear of it you know they, they, you're 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 stupid you're 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 crazy you're you're a dreamer you know, you know those are fairy tales oh, man. and and you you can talk to your blue in the face to some people and that they're, they're never going to buy into it and there's no point in arguing with people like that because right they're going to believe what they want to believe, no matter what you say. Until that day, they're out, they're out in, in their tree stand, and, and and they see something, and then they go out and have their own underwear changing moment. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, listen, Troy, we're just about out of time. Um, oh, that, I'm going to have to have you back on with a, a couple of friends, and we'll do a discussion um, I, that I think will be interesting if you're interested in doing that. Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. Alrighty. Well, any final thoughts yeah, well, before we sign off? Oh man, I just I appreciate you having me on. I, it, it's good to be able to talk to somebody. You know, and you talk to people all the time that they kind of shake and nod and give you that yeah okay whatever kind of look. But but I, you know I appreciate the, the you know the 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 conversation man you uh, keep Absolutely. on doing what you're doing man and and you I keep mean, in you, touch with me and and i'll i'm going to send you some stuff and we'll you know we'll continue this discussion welcome these are a series of five stories being brought to you by William Jevning and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one, William Rowe's Sworn Affidavit. I, W. Rowe, of the city of Edmonton, in the province of Alberta, make oath and say, one, that the exhibit A attached to this, my affidavit, is absolutely true and correct in all details. Sworn before me in the city of Edmonton, province of Alberta, this 26th day of August, A.D. 1957. Signed, William Rowe. Witnessed by W.H. Clark, Assistant Claims Agent, number D.D. 2822. Exhibit A. Ever since I was a small boy back in the forest of Michigan, I have studied the lives and habits of wild animals. Later, when I supported my family in northern Alberta by hunting and trapping, I spent many hours just observing the wild things. They fascinated me. But the most incredible experience I ever had with a wild creature occurred near a little town called Titwan Cache, British Columbia, about 80 miles west of Jasper, Alberta. I had been working on the highway near Titwan Cache for about two years. In October 1955, I decided to climb five miles up Micah Mountain to an old deserted mine just for something to do. I came in sight of the mine about three o'clock in the afternoon after an easy climb. I had just come out of a patch of low brush into a clearing 
when I saw what I thought was a grizzly bear in the bush on the other side. I had shot a grizzly near that spot the year before. This one was only about seventy-five yards away, but I didn't want to shoot it for I had no way of getting it out. So I sat down on a small rock and watched, my rifle in my hands. I could see part of the animal's head and the top of one shoulder. A moment later, it raised up and stepped out into the opening. Then I saw it was not a bear. This, to the best of my recollection, is what the creature looked like and how it acted as it came across the clearing directly toward me. My first impression was of a huge man, about six feet tall, almost three feet wide, and probably weighing somewhere near three hundred pounds. It was covered from head to foot with dark brown silver-tipped hair. But as it came closer, I saw by its breasts that it was a female. And yet, its torso was not curved like a female's. Its broad frame was straight from shoulder to hip. Its arms were much thicker than a man's arms, and longer, reaching almost to its knees. Its feet were broader proportionately than a man's, about five inches wide at the front and tapering to much thinner heels. When it walked, it placed the heel of its foot down first, and I could see the gray-brown skin or hide on the soles of its feet. It came to the edge of the bush I was hiding in, within twenty feet of me, and squatted down on its haunches. Reaching out its hands, it pulled the branches of bushes toward it and stripped the leaves with its teeth. Its lips curled flexibly around the leaves as it ate. I was close enough to see that its teeth were white and even. The shape of this creature's head somewhat resembled a negro's. The head was higher at the back than at the front. The nose was broad and flat. The lips and chin protruded farther than his nose, but the hair that covered it, leaving bare only the parts of its face around the mouth, nose, and ears, made it resemble an animal as much as a human. None of this hair, even on the back of its head, was longer than an inch, and that on its face was much shorter. Its ears were shaped like a human's ears, but its eyes were small and black like a bear's, and its neck also was unhuman, thicker and shorter than any man's I had ever seen. As I watched this creature, I wondered if some movie company was making a film at this place, and that what I saw was an actor made up to look partly human and partly animal. But as I observed it more, I decided it would be impossible to fake such a specimen. Anyway, I learned later there was no such company near that area, nor, in fact, did anyone live up Micah Mountain, according to the people who lived in Tetuan Cash. Finally, the wild thing must have got my scent, for it looked directly at me through an opening in the brush. A look of amazement crossed its face. It looked so comical at the moment I had to grin. Still in a crouched position, it backed up three or four short steps, then straightened up to its full height and started to walk rapidly back the way it had come. For a moment it watched me over its shoulder as it went, not exactly afraid, but as though it wanted no contact with anything strange. The thought came to me that, if I shot it, 
I would possibly have a specimen of great interest to scientists the world over. I had heard stories of the Sasquatch, the giant hairy creature that lives in the legends of British Columbia Indians, and also many claim are still in fact alive today. Maybe this was a Sasquatch, I told myself. I leveled my rifle. The creature was still walking rapidly away, again turning its head to look in my direction. I lowered the rifle. Although I have called the creature it, I felt now that it was a human being, and I knew I would never forgive myself if I killed it. Just as it came to the other patch of brush, it threw its head back and made a peculiar noise that seemed to be half laugh and half language, and which I can only describe as a kind of a whinny. Then it walked away from the small brush into a stand of lodgepole pine. I stepped out into the opening and looked across a small ridge just beyond the pine to see if I could see it again. It came out on the ridge a couple of hundred yards away from me, tipped its head back again, and again emitted the only sound I had heard it make. But what this half-laugh, half-language was meant to convey, I do not know. It disappeared then, and I never saw it again. I wanted to find out if it lived on vegetation entirely, or ate meat as well, so I went down and looked for signs. I found it in five different places, and although I examined it thoroughly, could find no hair or shells of bugs or insects, so I believe it was strictly a vegetarian. This ends the reading of story number one, William Rose Sworn Affidavit. Story number two, My First Encounter by William Jevning. My first incident with a creature I could not explain was in summer of 1966. Our family traveled south down the Oregon coast. We crossed over into California, and Dad drove down past Crescent City. We drove back inland toward I-5. There were five of us in the car. Dad, Mom, my older brother, who was 16, myself, then 15, and my younger brother, who was 13. We spent the night in Dunsmuir, California. The place we stayed in had small cabins and was west of I-5. I do not know the name of the place. There were several cabins, maybe ten to twelve of them, and a caregiver operator's home. The people working there were a couple in their late forties. They had three large dogs that were shepherd mix. The dogs were very friendly as my brothers and I played with them, throwing a tennis ball. It got dark early due to the thick forest and trees in the area. About 2 a.m. I awoke to the sounds of dogs whining. The dogs were chained up at the house of the caretakers. A mercury vapor lamp was lighting up the area between the house and our cabin. I believe the distance to be about 60 yards. I could see the dogs by the porch area of the house. They were whimpering and huddled together. I could see they were afraid, and looking out near an outbuilding or garage, I looked towards where they were looking and saw in the street area a huge hair-covered creature walking. It was at least eight feet tall and had long arms. 
It was just strolling on the small street, then into the woods. I was stunned. I did not know what it was, and I went back to bed, but did not sleep the rest of the night. Next morning the caretaker said something spooked his dogs, as they refused to leave the house after he fed them in the morning. I knew nothing of Bigfoot, and did not want to say anything about what I had seen. The next year my parents bought property in Ashford in Echo Valley. We spent lots of time up there. Dad had a small 16-foot trailer, and the kids slept in a large tent. We saw elk and deer walk through our property all the time. We would also see them in the meadow area, where there were several apple trees. The elk would pick them off the tree, and the deer seemed to feed off whatever dropped from the tree. In the late 70s, we heard weird howling from across the Nisqually River. One night, we heard a very loud scream from down by the river. It sounded like a high-pitched woman's scream. Next morning, several people in the place commented about the screams. I, by then, had heard of Bigfoot, and I believed that it was what I had saw in California. I was down at the river, once collecting rocks to circle the fire pit, and I heard grunting from across the river. I left right away, not bothering to take the rocks. In about 1982, a large group of our friends were camping on the property in an old army tent. My younger brother was sleeping next to the tent sidewall. His girlfriend was next to him, and several others were in the tent. He was startled awake when a large, hairy hand reached under the sidewall and grabbed his arm. He yelled, and everyone was awakened. He was so shook up, he armed himself, built up the fire, and locked himself in his truck. He was in his late twenties at the time, and was out of the army. After that, I only went there on day trips, and never camped there again. I know that there are Bigfoot creatures. I have heard them, seen them, smelled them. I don't hunt or fish, or go on my own up in the area unless I am armed. Talk to the people in Echo Valley, and ask them what they have seen or heard. This ends story number two, My First Encounter by William Jevning. Story number three. Introducing British Columbia's Hairy Giants by J.W. Burns The name Sasquatch was coined in the 1920s by J.W. Burns, though what is believed to be a mispronunciation of an Indian word, and for the most part is used primarily to describe our Canadian cryptid. Many indigenous peoples have varying terms for the wild ones and the forest fathers, but it was through J.W. Burns's writings and articles about the creature that this particular name has become known worldwide. The name Bigfoot first appeared in the October 5, 1958 copy of the Humboldt Times as a headline to an article written by the paper's editor, Andrew Genzoli, on a local man named Jerry Crew, who had shown up at the paper's office with a plaster cast of a footprint found in Bluff Creek Valley. British Columbian stories about encounters and footprints have been recorded by Indians and settlers alike going back over 100 years. But an oral history of Sasquatch encounters by British Columbia Indians 
goes back much further. J.W. Burns spent many years as a teacher on the Chehalis Indian Reserve beside the Harrison River, about 60 miles east of Vancouver, British Columbia. He wrote numerous articles and stories, which were published in the Vancouver newspapers of the day. He was keen to write about the encounters which local Indians were stated to have had with the hairy giants, including an article in a major national magazine in 1929, McLean's Magazine, April 1st issue. While those stories certainly did not convince non-Indian society that such creatures actually existed, they did make Sasquatch a household name, so much so that they even named a local inn after the creature. A collection of strange tales about British Columbia's wild men as told by those who say they have seen them are the vast mountain solitudes of British Columbia, of which but very few have been so far explored, populated by a hairy race of giant men, ape-like men. Reports from time to time covering a period of many years have come from the hinterlands of the province that hairy giants have been occasionally seen by Indian and white trappers in the mountain vastness, far from the pathway of civilization. These reports, however, were always vague and indefinite, for the reason that no person could be found, or at least nobody came forward with the information that they had obtained a close-up view of these strange creatures. Persistent rumors led this writer to make diligent inquiries among old Indians. The question relating to the subject was always, or nearly always, evaded with the trite excuse, The white man don't believe. He make joke of the Indian. But after three years of plotting, I have come into possession of information more definite and authentic than has come to light in any previous time. Disregarding rumor and hearsay, I have prevailed upon men who claim they had actual contact with these hairy giants to tell what they know about them. Their story is set down here in good faith. Peter Williams lives on the Chehalis River. I believe that he is a reliable as well as an intelligent Indian. He gave me the following thrilling account of his experience with these people. Peter's Encounter with the Giant One evening in the month of May, twenty years ago, he said, I was walking along the foot of the mountain about a mile from the Chehalis Reserve. I thought I heard a noise, something like a grunt nearby. Looking in the direction in which it came, I was startled to see what I took at first sight to be a huge bear crouched upon a boulder twenty or thirty feet away. I raised my rifle to shoot it, but, as I did, the creature stood up and let out a piercing yell. It was a man, a giant, no less than six and one-half feet in height, and covered with hair. He was in rage and jumped from the boulder to the ground. I fled, but not before I felt his breath upon my cheek. I never ran so fast before or since, through brush and undergrowth toward the Statlu, or Chehalis River, where my dugout was moored. From time to time I looked back over my shoulder. The giant was fast overtaking me, a hundred feet separated us. Another look, and the distance measured less than fifty. 
pushed my boat into the Chehalis, and in a moment the dugout shot across the stream to the opposite bank. The swift river, however, did not in the least daunt the giant, for he began to wade it immediately. I arrived home almost worn out from running, and I felt sick. Taking an anxious look around the house, I was relieved to find the wife and the children inside. I bolted the door and barricaded it with everything at hand. Then, with my rifle ready, I stood near the door and awaited his coming. Peter added that if he had not been so much excited, he could easily have shot the giant when he began to wade the river. After an anxious waiting of twenty minutes, resumed the Indian, I heard a noise approaching like the trampling of horse. I looked through a crack in the old wall. It was the giant. Darkness had not yet set in, and I had a good look at him. Except that he was covered with hair and twice the bulk of an average man, there was nothing to distinguish him from the rest of us. He pushed against the wall of the old house with such force that it shook back and forth. The old cedar shook, and timbers creaked and groaned so much under the strain that I was afraid it would fall down and kill us. I whispered to the old woman to take the children under the bed. Peter pointed out what remained of the old house in which he lived at the time, explaining that the giant treated it so roughly that it had to be abandoned the following winter. After prowling and grunting like an animal round the house, continued Peter, he went away. We were glad, for the children and the wife were uncomfortable under the old bedstead. Next morning I found his tracks in the mud around the house, the biggest of either man or beast I had ever seen. The tracks measured twenty-two inches in length, but narrow in proportion to their length. The following winter, while shooting wild duck on that part of the reserve Indians called the Prairie, which is on the north side of the Harrison River and about two miles from the Chehalis village, Peter once more came face to face with the same hairy giant. The Indian ran for dear life, followed by the wild man, but after pursuing him for three or four hundred yards, the giant gave up the chase. Old village Indians, who called upon Peter to hear of his second encounter, nodded their heads sagely, shrugged their shoulders, and for some reason not quite clear, seemed not to wish the story to gain any further publicity. On the afternoon of the same day, another Indian by the name of Paul was chased from the creek, where he was fishing for salmon, by the same individual. Paul was in a state of terror, for unlike Peter, he had no gun. A short distance from his shack, the giant suddenly quit and walked into the bush. Paul, exhausted from running, fell in the snow, and had to be carried home by his mother and others of the family. The first and second time, Peter went on, I was all alone when I met this strange mountain creature. Then, early in the spring of the following year, another man and myself were bear hunting near the place where I first met him. On this occasion we ran into two of these giants. They were sitting on the ground. At first we thought they were old tree stumps, but... When we were within fifty feet or so, they suddenly stood up, and we came to an immediate stop. Both were nude. We were close enough to know that they were man and woman. The woman was the smaller of the two, but neither of them as big or fierce-looking as the giant that chased me. We ran home, but they did not follow us. 
One morning, some few weeks after this, Peter and his wife were fishing in a canoe on the Harrison River near Harrison Bay. Paddling round a neck of land, they saw on the beach within a hundred feet of them the giant Peter had met the previous year. We stood for a long time looking at him, said the Indian, but he took no notice of us. That was the last time I saw him, concluded Peter. Peter remarked that his father and numbers of old Indians knew that wild men lived in the caves in the mountains, had often seen them. He wished to make it clear that these creatures were in no way related to the Indian. He believes that there are a few of them living at present in the mountains near Agassiz. That concludes story number three about Sasquatch and J.W. Burns. Story number four. Jacko, British Columbia gorilla captured. British Columbia, July 3rd, 1882. In the immediate vicinity of Number 4 Tunnel, situated some 20 miles above this village, are bluffs of rock which have hitherto been insurmountable, but on Monday morning last were successfully scaled by Mr. Onderdonk's employees on their regular train from Lytton. Assisted by Mr. Costerton and the British Columbia Express Company's messenger, and a number of gentlemen from Lytton and points east of that place, who, after considerable trouble and perilous climbing, succeeded in capturing a creature which may truly be called half-man and half-beast. Jacko, as the creature has been called by his captors, is something of the gorilla type, standing about four feet seven inches in height and weighing about 127 pounds. He has long, black, strong hair and resembles a human being with one exception— his entire body, except his hands, or paws, and feet, are covered with glossy hair about one inch long. His forearm is much longer than a man's, and he possesses extraordinary strength, as he will take hold of a stick and break it by wrenching it or twisting it, which no man living could break in the same way. Since his capture, he is very reticent, only occasionally uttering a noise, which is a half-bark and half-growl, he is, however, becoming more attached to his keeper, Mr. George Tilbury, of this place, who proposes shortly starting for London, England, to exhibit him. His favorite food so far is berries, and he drinks fresh milk with evident relish. By advice of Dr. Hannington, raw meats have been withheld from Jacko as to make him savage. The mode of capture was as follows. Ned Austin, the engineer, on coming in sight of the bluff at the eastern end of Number 4 Tunnel, saw what he supposed to be a man lying asleep in the close proximity to the track, and, as thought, blew the signal to apply the brakes. The brakes were instantly applied, and in a few seconds the train was brought to a standstill. At this moment the supposed man sprang up, and uttering a sharp, quick bark, began to climb the steep bluff. Conductor R.J. Craig and Express Manager Costerton, followed by the baggage men and brakemen, jumped from the train and, knowing they were some twenty minutes ahead of time, immediately gave chase. After five minutes of perilous climbing, the then-supposed demented Indian 
was corralled on the projecting shelf of rock, where he could neither ascend nor descend. The query was how to capture him alive, which was quickly decided by Mr. Craig, who crawled on his hands and knees until he was about forty feet above the creature. Taking a small piece of loose rock, he let it fall, and it had the desired effect of rendering the poor jacko of resistance for a time at least. The bell rope was then brought up, and jacko was now lowered to terra firma. After firmly binding him and placing him in the baggage car, off brakes was sounded, and the train started for Yale. At the station a large crowd, who had heard of the capture by telephone from Spasm Flat, were assembled, each one anxious to have the first look at the monstrosity. But they were disappointed, as Jacko had been taken off at the machine shops and placed in charge of his present keeper. The question naturally arises, how came the creature where it was first seen by Mr. Austin? From bruises about its head and body, and apparently soreness since its capture, it is supposed that Jacko ventured too near the edge of the bluff, slipped, and fell, and lay where found until the sound of the rushing train aroused him. Mr. Thos, White, and Mr. Gaon, C.E., as well as Mr. Major, who kept a small store about a half-mile west of the tunnel during the past two years, have mentioned having seen a curious creature at different points between camps 13 and 17, but no attention was paid to their remarks as people came to the conclusion that they had either seen a bear or stray Indian dog. Who can unravel the mystery that now surrounds Jacko? Does he belong to a species hitherto unknown in this part of the continent? Or is he really what the trainman first thought he was, a crazy Indian? No one ever positively determined the eventual fate of Jacko, however. It is believed that during the voyage to England the creature died and its corpse was disposed of overboard, which would have been a standard practice during that time period. No one knew for certain. And that ends the reading of Jacko, British Columbia Gorilla Captured. Story number five comes to us directly from Will Jevning. It is his interview of Al Hogsden in 2005. There has been little mention of Al Hogsden, the man who would play a pivotal role in the events surrounding Bluff Creek. He became one of the prominent investigators who eventually made history in that region during the 1960s. But only those who have taken a serious look at the history of the Sasquatch issue will be familiar with the role and importance of Hogson. I recently traveled to Willow Creek, and Al consented to give me an interview. In my opinion, he should be included in any discussion of the events that have become historic with regard to the issue of the Sasquatch as a whole. Al Hogson is a humble individual who doesn't consider himself to be important to the issue. He is extremely friendly and a pleasure to talk to. I feel he should be given the respect and attention he is so deserving of, and therefore be placed alongside such big names associated with the Sasquatch issue as John Green, Rene DeHinden, Bob Titmus, Roger Patterson, and Bob Gimlin. These men are all the real pioneers of this subject. 
They are men who were willing to risk ridicule to bring light to the subject and started it on its way to formal recognition. The following is a transcript of my interview with Al Hogson in 2005. Jevning. What I would like to do first of all is find out uh, about you, uh, where you were born, where you grew up. Hogson. Well, I was born in Illinois, to be honest with you. Born in Illinois in 1923. We came to California during the Depression when my father and mother had done real well with the farm. But things went real bad. Then they lost everything in the crash of the banks. And the money was all gone, and they sold as much as they could, and we loaded us up, and we had eight kids. <laughs> Would you believe that at the time? We came to California. My father worked in Eureka at Hammond's. He worked over there at Hammond's. He worked there, and I don't remember exactly when, but it was before the 1906 earthquake, because he was in San Francisco, then Eureka, and lost everything he had in the quake. And then he got back to Illinois, and then married and raised a family, and he had done real well. Then the crash. So we moved here to Eureka, and Hammond's was closed. He figured he could go back to work at Hammond's, and well, it was closed, so we wound up out here at Willow Creek. Believe it or not, in 1933 we came to Willow Creek. Yeah, 1933. And Willow Creek wasn't much then, I tell you. We have a picture out here somewhere of it, but there was nothing here. A little bit of gold mining, sniping, and so forth. In fact, it was how we got here. Somebody suggested, well, you might make some money sniping for gold on the Trinity River. Well, that didn't work out. And, and my dad went up towards Sums Bar, and that didn't work out either. So anyway, we still found a little place down there on South Fork, and we managed to raise a garden and caught some fish, and we ate more salmon. <laughs> I got so tired of salmon. We ate a little venison, and we survived. Finally, we got a little money from the sale of the place in Illinois, and there wasn't much money coming in, but there was some later on, and so anyway, we wound up established here in Willow Creek, and I lived here until I went into the service in 1941, just before the war. I was in before Pearl Harbor. In fact, I was in Detroit, Michigan, actually Dearborn, where I was attending a school there for the Navy. It was interesting. I didn't meet, but saw Henry Ford there and his son Edsel Ford, who was one of our officers. Anyway, it was interesting. It was interesting in a lot of ways. Well, they had their own steel mill there, and their own locomotives. The engines had no firebox, but they had a boiler, but no firebox. They would run over there to the steel mill and get a hot charge of steel and put it into the boiler to run the engine until it cooled and run back to the steel mill for another charge. It was a very interesting time there. I was in the Navy for five and a half years. I didn't see any action until the last six months. I was over in the Okinawa campaign, uh, there when they dropped the first bomb. The guys were absolutely stunned. They couldn't believe it. Then they dropped the second one, and Japan said they wanted to surrender, so we were operating squadron of 
four engine seaplanes and they patrolled the North Sea. Anyway, when Japan announced that they were surrendering, we pulled up anchor and headed for Japan. We pulled into Sasabo, Japan, right next to Nagasaki, and it was still smoldering. We pulled in there and was there three days before the Marines arrived. So here come the Marines invading, but the Japanese, there was no fight left in them. That was it. So we were there for a week, week and a half, and we went to Hong Kong and spent six weeks in Hong Kong. We left there just before Christmas, got into San Francisco, I think Christmas Day or something like that. Anyway, I got out of the Navy in 1946, and I worked here and got married and worked on the coast for five years, then came back here to Willow Creek and started this store. Jevning. What kind of store was it? Hogson. Well, we started out strictly as a five-and-dime store, or what you would call a variety store, and at the end, before we closed, we had branched out and had clothing and a whole bunch of stuff. That was our downfall. Clothing is hard to do, and, well, it's hard. Anyway, we were in that, and we had quite a large store, 11,000 square feet, and the medical building at the end of town. That was our building. It still is our building, but at any rate, St. Joe's wanted to lease it, and they wanted it worse than we did, so we leased it to them, which was the best thing that ever happened to us. Even though it was sad and hard for me to get out of the store, Jevning. So, when did you first hear about something like Bigfoot, Hogson? Well, the first I recall was when I came back from the service in 1946, but I'm not exactly sure. My brothers had said something like, well, why don't you and I go over there and catch that ape over across the river? Well... I wasn't interested in catching the ape. I had other things to do. I was young and in my early 20s, and I thought, nah, I wasn't interested. So, anyway, that was the first I heard of it. And, of course, nobody said it was a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch or anything. The word I heard was ape. And we all heard it over there, and it was over here just a couple of miles. Jevning. It was something that was common knowledge. Hugson. Yeah, well, over there, and everyone had heard it, and no one knew what it was. And fact is, one man, he wouldn't believe it wasn't animal. It had to be an animal. That was here, just something wrong with it. He said he thought it was a bear with a broken jaw. Fact is, it wasn't too many years ago before he died, the man... He's been gone several years now, but we still had the store, and he was here in the store, and said, I said to him, what do you think that was over there? And he said, well, I think it was a bear with a deformed throat. Jevning. This was because of the noises they heard? Hogson. Yeah, what they heard, but to him it had to be a bear. It couldn't be anything else could be a mountain lion or a bear with a deformed throat. Then a lady who had found tracks, or her daughter had seen the tracks, or had seen it, the creature, we had the first cast I, I had made, was lying on the counter in our store, and she came in and she said, yeah, that's what was over at our place. 
Jevening. Well, how did outsiders come to take an interest in Willow Creek, do you know? People like John Green or Bob Titmus, people like that. Hogson. Well, I don't know exactly, but I think news spread pretty rapidly. Jevening. The reporter from Eureka who came out here with Jerry Crew? Hogson. Well, that was a news story. Uh, actually, this lady, who was a very good friend of ours named Betty Allen, she was a guest columnist for the Humboldt Times newspaper at that time, and I'm not sure, but she might have written my name in her column, and, well, she probably did. And Anyway, she kept after me, and she said, Al, you should say something about this, meaning strange things being seen. It'd be good for Willow Creek. And of course, at first I said, I'm not having anything to do with it. That's a hoax, and I want nothing to do with it. The fact is, they tried to sell me a copy of the first Titmus cast. Well, not the Titmus cast, Jerry Crew's first cast. Titmus had copies of the first cast Jerry Crew made, and I wouldn't buy it. I said, no, I don't want to buy it. This is a hoax, and I don't want anything to do with a hoax. When she, Betty Allen, finally got me interested, I, I said, okay, I'll take you up. So my boys were small, and my wife... We all got into the station wagon. We took her and this other guy, and we all went up there. Jevening. Now, is that up in the Bluff Creek area where they were building the roads? Hogson. Yeah, we went up to the Louse Camp. That's where we stopped, and then went on up from there. Jevening. What time period would that have been? Hogson. Oh, that would have been 1963. That's when she, Betty Allen, talked me into going up. And then she said, Al, why don't you go down to the creek? Well, I still wasn't too impressed with the tracks. On the road, they had covered them up with bark. And, well, we uncovered them. And sure enough, there were tracks there. And I understand that because the logging trucks were going by all the time, and they'd fill them up with dust. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been any good tracks at all. In fact, the rest of the tracks were wiped out from that very thing. But anyway, we made casts of those tracks, and then she suggested, Al, why don't you go down to the creek and see if there's anything there? And I did, and sure did find tracks there. My wife to this day says that maybe somebody made them for me. Well, by golly, you don't know for sure. So anyway, that hooked me. I made a lot of trips up there, and I don't know other than the fact that through her call, I, well, I don't know if she wrote about me, but I think she did. And so, word spread. Jevening. So, when anyone came into town, you were the guy to see? Hogson. Yeah, that's right. So, about the same time, Roger Patterson stopped at the store to see me, and John Green, about the same time, I don't remember seeing Rene de Hinden except when he was with John Green. I, I can't remember seeing Titmus unless it was with John Green either, but oh, I don't remember. It, it's been so long, I, I just don't remember. I, I didn't keep track of things like that. Jevning. Now, did the loggers or road builders ever stop at the store and tell you things they had seen? Hogson. Well, most generally not, you know. What the reason was is 
In fact, some of them told me afterward, after the fact, hey, we saw tracks, but we didn't want all those people up there in our way. We're trying to make a living. Fact is, a lot of them simply hampered their operations. When a bunch of guys went up there with cameras and expecting to get the news media and everything else up there, and, well, that's what happened. A lot of people came into the store, and I'd shake my head, and I came in and find that some of them had driven in from Los Angeles and expected to catch him. Bigfoot, you know, over the weekend. And that's exactly what they told me. I just thought, come on, you guys, you're crazy. Then, over the years, I come to realize that they're everywhere, Sasquatches, not just up there in Bluff Creek area. I told John Green once that that's a mecca out there for Bigfoot hunters. Anyway, that's kind of how I got into all this. I still don't consider myself anything. I may never have, but that's okay. Shepning. When Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin got the film, they came to see you, is that correct? Hogson. Well, yeah. What happened was, John Green had called me on a Thursday, I think, and said, Al, would you meet me at my chartered plane at Orleans? Then there was an airstrip there in those days, and not anymore, and that's a good thing because it was so bad that someone would eventually get killed there. Anyway, he had chartered a plane, and he had someone with a tracking dog that was coming. They wanted to go up there where the tracks had recently been found. And I said, sure, I'll meet you, John. So my wife said she would watch the store. My older son and I took the station wagon and went to Orleans and waited for the plane to come in. When it sat down, John and the dog handler, well, I'm not sure who was with them, but I think it was DeHinden. Chevening. Was this before Roger Patterson got the film? Hogson. That's correct. So we went up there. We got into the station wagon. Mike, my son, and I was driving. Mike was in the back seat with the dog handler. John was in the front seat, and DeHinden was in the back with the dog. The dog handler said, that dog is going to follow it. And when he got there, very quickly he said, it's going to take care of that dog, and I'm next, referring to what made the tracks. That's exactly what he said. Jevening. He was afraid the creature was going to get them? Hoxon. That's right. And so I didn't think too much about it. Anyway, we stopped there at a little store at Bluff Creek to get some things to eat. Well, they hadn't brought anything. We stopped and got some stuff. John told me that I had loaned him a hundred dollars. And I, well, I don't remember it, but I took his word for it. He says I loaned him a hundred dollars. You know, he didn't have time to convert his Canadian money into U.S. dollars. So, anyway, they bought some things to take up that night to the campground. We came back out of the store, and that dog handler just had a fit. Here was Mike with his arm around that dog's neck. The handler said, that dog's a killer. He couldn't believe it. <laughs> you know, kids and dogs. But, well, he just couldn't believe it. Anyway, we got up there just before dark, and there were tracks. I only saw two sets of tracks. Originally, there was three, but I never saw the third one. But I did see two sets, two different sizes. So anyway, I had promised Roger Patterson that I'd let him know if tracks showed up. Jevning. 
had asked you previously to do this? Hogson. Yeah, that's right. He had asked me previously if I'd call him, and I said, sure, I will. Well, I had no idea how well he and John got along or anything. I had no idea, so I, I didn't call until John left. When John and the other guys had left, I called Roger, and I told him what I did. I said, I'm sorry, I'm concerned how you guys get along. He said, well, I think I'll come down anyhow. I said, well, they are probably clear out of the country by now. I expected there were only one or two, but I don't know. They're probably gone. And he said, well, I, I've been wanting to come down anyhow. I think I'll come down. And that's the last I heard from him until the day he took the film. And he stopped in from the store and told me. Al, he says, I got a picture of the son of a buck. Anyway, that's what happened there. And since then, long after that, only a couple years ago, I found out who found the tracks in the first place. I know the guy, and hesitate to reveal his name, because I'm not quite sure if he would want it known. He's an Indian fellow, and believe it or not, it's taken me a long time to talk to some of these people who were involved in some of these things. I'm not concerned about talking to them. I've talked to them about other things, but not about this hesitant about doing something to stop the trust, you know, between us, so I, I don't do that, reveal identities, for that reason. I do know him, nice guy, and he said, Al, he told me, you know where those tracks were, he said, way up there on the ridge, way back, and he said that, well, I was the last guy out. Jevnin, was he part of the logging crew up there? Hogson, yeah, yeah, he was running it. He run that show up there. He wasn't the owner, but he run it, and he said that I was the last guy that night, and I was the first one in in the morning. There had been just a little shower of rain, and he said you could tell these are fresh tracks, and they went down this road, and said that if anyone came in to fake the tracks, well, they would have had to come clear from Pequon, up over the bridge, which is a long way through there. Jevning. There weren't too many roads through there yet, were there? Hogson. No. No, and there still isn't that many, but, you know, in that area anyway, but he said it was almost impossible for somebody to walk in and make fake tracks like that. He said it was almost impossible because, well, there'd have been tracks of whoever made the fake tracks, too. So Roger met me at the store, and he told me that he got pictures of him, you know, the Bigfoot, and I talked to him for a long time that night. He says we got to get back up there. This other friend of mine who worked for the Forest Service, he called me later and he says, Al, come on down to the forestry. And Sil McCoy and I both went down with Roger Patterson and with Gimlin and talked that night, oh, I don't know how long, a lot longer than we should have because, well, they were anxious to get up back there to their horses well, when we left down here. I don't know, but it was late then, and when we got in there, and they had problems getting out. Those were some interesting experiences. There are so many things I'd like to see. I'd like to see one, a Sasquatch. I don't expect to anymore, but you never know either. Jeffning. After the film was made, Patterson's, it, it seemed like it got really quiet up there at Bluff Creek. Was anything seen again after that? 
oxen. No, not to my knowledge there wasn't, but that doesn't mean anything. Like you said, so many people don't say anything, and there is so much controversy about these things being fake and what have you, and I think a lot of people don't, well, didn't want to get wound up in something like this. I don't blame them. I'd see it the same way. In fact, I know people right today that don't want to because they say, well, I don't want to get in this. I don't want to get in this thing here. They may tell me, but so many of them don't want to tell me because they're afraid, and like this National Geographic film crew who was here about a year ago, that just made me sick because some of the people that told me they didn't want to come up front, well, anyway, to talk about their experiences, but then they didn't like the way they were portrayed in this manner. Jevning, I'm not familiar with this. Hogson, you're not? Jevning, National Geographic did a film on this? The Sasquatch? Hogson, yes, oh yes, a year ago, and I busted my butt to get people for them that had seen a Sasquatch. I had about a half dozen people that came forward, but you know something? They had to portray Wallace, Ray Wallace, and some of these people and, and make them look like a bunch of fools. Jevning, you knew Ray Wallace, Hoxson. Oh, yeah, I knew him. Jevning, he used to run a logging crew up there at Bluff Creek, didn't he? Hoxson, well, he was quite a wheel. I mean, as far as uh, well, he contracted and uh, d did a lot of contracting and road building and well, this wasn't the only place. In fact, it's one of the guys that was up there, one of the guys that knew him very well. Fact is, he told me that Ray actually practically raised him. He was an orphan, and Ray gave him a job and took care of him. And he says, I don't think Ray did all this crap they say that, that he did. Jevning. All the fake stuff? Hogson. Yeah. Now, he and I both agree that Ray was great for a joke, but he wasn't a guy to fake all this stuff and try to make it look real. Chevening. I see. Hogson. There's no doubt in my mind that he was a prankster. He loved it, but like this fellow said who knew him so well, he was hardly ever up there. He was out someplace else bidding on more jobs to keep his crews working. Chevening. Another thing I was interested in was, how did you come about putting the museum together? Hoxson. Well, you know the museum was put together here initially by a group of Willow Creek people, including my sister, and I had a small part back, well, nothing really important. And I understand initially, according to her, my sister, or my son, the youngest son, mentioned to her husband, who is now deceased, that, no, too bad we don't have a museum for some of the local stuff, not Bigfoot. And so consequently, they wound up putting this together with that group of people from Willow Creek from all different walks of life. And so then when Bob Titmus died, well, he made it known to John Green that he'd like for his things would you know come up here, providing he would have a separate room. He said, no, we... We don't want it in a little corner, but in a separate room. So from then I went to the Chamber of Commerce, and they weren't interested. And I went to the museum board, and well, they went for it. One guy, though, was so dead set against it about 
being hoaxed. Well, he resigned from the board. At any rate, that was how they built that wing over there. They raised a hundred-something thousand dollars when, when they built that. We talked to the local Chrysler agency and put on golf tournaments to pay for it, and then Simpson Logging and some others donated a lot of materials and built that building. Jevning. Do you get a lot of people that come through and show a lot of interest in the museum? Hoxson. Oh, yeah, and anyway, that's how it got put together. Some people are die-hard skeptics yet today who say, Ah, Bigfoot. We don't need Bigfoot, of all things. One of the people that thinks this way was the executive secretary of the Chamber of Commerce, and well, her husband worked for the Forest Service for years, and he was a friend of mine, and never saw anything. So, to her, it doesn't exist because her husband never saw anything. But that's the way she is. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's hard for me sometimes because this has brought more people to Willow Creek. Jevning. Al, is there anything you'd like to say about the issue of Sasquatch itself? Hogson. Well, I absolutely believe. I've come to believe they exist. It took me a long time to come to that conclusion. Fact is, when I really positively become a believer was during putting all this together here. I'll tell you why. I don't have any idea where your religious beliefs are, but what happened? We at the time had a Bible study at our house every Friday night. After this one Friday night, after we had put the museum together, I told the Bible study that night what had happened, and then when everyone had left except this one couple, well, the wife came up to me and she said, Al, you know, I saw one. She told me, and she said, I don't want you to tell anyone. My family laughed at me too much already. I don't want more people laughing at me. And so that is why I truly became a believer. There was no doubt in my mind she wasn't lying. And they had a hunting cabin somewhere below Mark's Ferry there and back up a ways. They were hunting, and, well, she wasn't hunting, but she was at the cabin, and she and her mother were sitting outside on lawn chairs, and her son come up the road. Apparently the road, you know, come up where they could see, and she said she saw it coming, and she said, there's something following him. And as it got closer, she saw what it was, and it got up there, and she said it just stood right there and looked at her. She could tell me right away exactly what it looked like. Jevning. Well, Al, that should do it. Thank you. I sure appreciate the interview. Hogson. Well, I hope it'll help you, and maybe people will find it interesting. I wish I could remember more of the details of the things that happened here, but I really didn't pay attention. I, I, I did, and I didn't. I knew Jerry Crew. I knew him well and never asked him about it. The things what happened around the Bluff Creek area in the 1950s, I saw him many years afterward and I still didn't ask him about it. And what really got me was he wasn't alone when he took those first casts of tracks. There was a fellow by the name of J.Q. Hunter and another named Jess Pascal with Jerry Crew. That information was not known until the symposium two years ago. On a Saturday, 
They went up there, and they found tracks. They didn't have any plaster of Paris, no camera, nothing. So they came back to Willow Creek to get plaster of Paris. Well, it was too late that night, so they went up Sunday. Well, Jerry and this other guy went up. J.Q. Hunter oh, couldn't go because he was preaching that Sunday. He was the pastor there at the Bible church. So the two of them went up, and they made those casts. I knew all those people. There were such great people. Although Al Hogson is seldom mentioned in books written about the Sasquatch, he is one of the pivotal sources in the history of this subject, as were the events that took place in Bluff Creek, Northern California, between 1957 and 1967. These really captured the public's attention on the subject. Today, with the passing of time and people who were directly involved in some of the important events that brought the subject of the Sasquatch to the public consciousness, controversy about those events abounds, and, unfortunately, it is being created by those eager to gain attention and notoriety by any means, positive or negative. For example, Jerry Crew's plaster cast impressions of some of the footprints he and other workers found around their equipment at the work site are today being called into question by members of Ray Wallace's family. They claim that Wallace made wood feet to play a joke on workers. However, Roger Patterson wrote about Wallace's reaction when he saw the footprints that work crews had found, and he was as mystified as the others. Furthermore, Al Hogson, who knew Ray Wallace well, stated that he never believed that Ray was behind any hoax. The fact is that footprints have been found literally by the thousands of various sizes over decades prior to the Bluff Creek finds and long after Wallace's death. This in itself lends credibility to the findings. Al Hogson became the person to contact when outsiders such as John Green and Rene DeHinden came to Bluff Creek. Hogson knew many of the workers who discovered strange footprints, and he knew them to be honest individuals. Perhaps the most enduring event for which Al should be remembered is Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin obtaining the only film footage to date of a Sasquatch. Al said that Patterson had asked him to notify him if tracks showed up. So after the trip, Green and DeHinden made in September 1967 with the tracking dog, where footprints were found, Al did just that. And the rest is history. This ends the reading of the five stories. Thank you for listening. I Met the Abominable Snowman, a true story by Dr. George Moore, M.D., exclusively published in Sports Afield, May 1957, Readers will enjoy this eyewitness novelistic account by the first American to meet face-to-face -face the mystery animal of the Himalayas, the Yeti. Even without Moore's chance meeting with the mysterious creatures of the Himalayas, the author of this account would have a remarkable story to tell. In October of 1952, Dr. Moore, his wife and daughter, arrived in Nepal. Dr. Moore, as Chief of the Public Health Division of the U.S. Operations Mission under the Foreign Operations Administration, was the public health advisor to the new Nepalese government that had thrown the doors of the land open to foreigners for the first time since 1816. 
Dr. Moore pioneered the health program of a country suddenly plummeted into the 20th century. His duties took him on extensive trips into towns and villages never before seen by white men. Moore became fascinated by the customs and habits of the Nepalese people, a people quick to win his lifelong admiration and respect. After his two-year tour of duty expired, Moore inactivated his commission in the Public Health Service and is at present director of the San Juan Basin Health Unit in Durango, Colorado. The story begins. Monsoon. Heavy gray clouds had been drifting northward from Calcutta for days that June in 1953. Already early rains, warning of what was to come, had soaked the red dust of the Himalayas. The air was clean and cool. Myriads of tiny blue, white, and yellow potentia had suddenly blanketed the green tundra above the timberline. It was curious how the colors deepened as we descended the slope. White grew highest, then yellow, mixed with white, and finally blue flowers dotted the landscape farther down. The rains weren't bad enough to travel in, but at least they were a welcome change from the snow about 17,000 feet. Gusinkan Pass had been the last high obstacle to Kathmandu on our return trip from the northern border of Nepal. In fact, the day before had seen us sloshing knee-deep in the soft, wet snow. Our coolies suffered the most. Half-naked and barefooted, they had struggled desperately carrying 80-pound packs on their backs. A Himalayan blizzard is no joke, even for the experienced native porters, when slippery rocks and precocious ledges must be climbed. Brooks, Dr. George K. Brooks, an entomologist on our staff and I were slowly making our way back to our homes in Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal, from a mission of mercy to the Sherpas of the northern country. The government had asked us to help in controlling an epidemic of typhus in Sherpaland, our name for the high Himalayan country close to the Tibet border. We had been the doctors assigned to the job and now were weary, but satisfied that the evil Rikitisia were licked for good. We raced to get home before the monsoon whipped us. Black skies, torrents of rain, and foggy, slippery trails on the sides of the mountains obviously held no love the Himalayan intruders such as we. It was at 11,000 feet. I remember that we had left Turkey Gyeong, the last village of the Grateful Sherpas. We're heading south now. The foothills of the Himalayas that surrounded Kathmandu 28 miles away were visible from the tops of the mountains. This was the era of the home of the gods, a holy place to the natives. Our footsteps followed the same path two or three thousand devout Hindus take on the annual pilgrimage to worship in the Himalayan heights. A scant two or three hundred returned from these journeys. The rest die along the way. On our journey up, smoke from countless funeral pyres were a reminder of the rigor and mystery of the area. The trail was less steep now, but slick with red mud. Mossy pines closed over us and thrust their sprawling roots across the way. Bloodthirsty leeches lurking under the rocks and awakened by our sounds crawled on our boots and up the coolies' dark nude limbs at every step. Only speed and more speed would enable us to leave this dismal, lonely, God-forsaken range of mountains. Brooks, as we called him, and I pushed as hard and as fast as we dared. Abrasive-soled boots and six-foot balancing poles cut from the timber enabled us to make excellent time on a ribbon of red mud. 
It was not long before we had left the coolies far behind. Not even their cries and shouts could be heard. The forest was deathly still. Fog banks, raw and cold, drifted through the tall pines and left their boughs dripping and slimy. Rounding a sharp turn in the trail, Brooks stopped abruptly. He leaned against a large rock to extract a leech that was at the point of disappearing over the edge of his boot. I stood there watching Brooks and fumbling for my pipe when an almost imperceptible movement in a clump of tall rhododendron caught my eye. Something had moved, I was sure. There it was again. This time a few leaves rustled more than mere chance could move. Brooks, sensing something was wrong, quickly forgot about his leech. Almost simultaneously, we both slipped our revolvers out of their holsters. On our right, the slope was dangerously steep. Behind us, the slope climbed upward. There was a large boulder by the side of the trail, and we eased over to it, glad for the protection from the rear that it afforded us. We waited, tense and expectant. The stillness was awesome. The fog and mist seemed to form weird shapes, withering and twisting through the dense foliage. Suddenly, from in front of us, a raucous scream pierced the air. Another followed from the right of us. The ghostly quality of the mist and the unreality of the situation had a nightmarish tinge. God, Brooks whispered. What was that? My spine was tingling in high gear now. I gripped my thirty-eight Smith & Wesson more firmly. About twenty feet away, somewhat in front of our rock, was the clump of rhododendron where the first scream broke the stillness. This time it seemed it though it was behind us. Brooks, I managed to whisper. Let's get on this rock and in a hurry. Brooks did not need a second invitation. In an instant, we scrambled on top of the massive boulder. From our new perch, we carefully searched in all directions for the next move. Our movements must have been closely watched, for a loud chattering immediately assailed us from the bushes in front. The angry chatter filled the raw air as new cries joined in the chorus from all sides. We were definitely surrounded. Brooks muttered, Oh my God, how many of them are there? And what are they? Brooks, I managed to whisper, Let's get on this rock and in a hurry. Brooks did not need a second invitation. In an instant, we scrambled on top of the massive boulder. From our new perch, we carefully searched in all directions for the next move. Our movements must have been closely watched for a loud chattering immediately assailed us from the bushes in front. The angry chatter filled the raw air as new cries joined in the chorus from all sides. We were definitely surrounded. Brooks muttered, Oh my God, how many of them are there? And what are they? We got some idea of what was there when a hideous face thrust apart the wildly thrashing leaves and gaped at us. I shall not long forget the faces grayish skin, beetle-black eyebrows, a mouth that seemed to extend from ear to ear, and long yellowish teeth were nerve-shattering enough, but those eyes, beady, yellow eyes, that stared at us with obvious demonical cunning and anger, that face! Weird ideas were beginning to force their way into mind. Perhaps, but no, damn it, it has to be. This was the abominable snowman. No, I insisted to myself, there is no such creature as an abominable snowman or yeti. 
This face has to be an ape or a man or a demon or the snowman. A hand pushed through the leaves, then a quick movement and a shoulder. There before us appeared the semblance of a body. Sweat was visible on Brooke's face now as we crouched lower, hugging the rock for what it was worth. My hands looked white in the semi-darkness. As the creature emerged through the dark leaves, we strained to make out this form. I felt blind panic start through me. Then I stopped. Balls of fire, I thought. I've got to get a grip on myself. The creature was about five feet tall, half crouching on two thin hairy legs, leering at us in an undisguised fury. Claws or hands seemed dark, perhaps black, while his bedraggled hairy body was gray and thin. It shuffled along with a stoop the way a Neolithic caveman might have walked. Well-built and sinewy, it could prove to be the most formidable opponent. Teeth bared, it snarled like an animal. Two long fangs protruded from its upper lip. Suddenly, a sharp, flickering movement behind it caught our eyes. George, a tail, look there, Brooks cried. A thousand thoughts raced through my mind at once. Well, Brooks, I replied, this thing could be the abominable snowman, but it also can be an ape, a large logger ape, perhaps. Truthfully, I was more concerned with survival than identification. The band of animals was certainly aggressive, giving every indication that they meant to destroy us. But I couldn't help thinking about the creatures themselves. They didn't look like the common langur monkeys I had seen in India. At the same time, they had ape-like characteristics. Scientific possibilities crowded their way into my mind, even as I checked my revolver for the attack. Higher altitudes, fewer minerals in the water, could produce less hair. Lack of heavy timber in the high regions, which would make climbing ability relatively valueless, could produce an erect species. Mutations, the methods by which new species are created, have occurred and are constantly observable in laboratories. Variations within a single species over a period of time can produce animals greatly different from the parent strain. I had no time to share these thoughts with Brooks. The best I could mumble was an unsteady, Get ready. Other figures were now approaching from several directions. We could make out six or seven of them through the mist. One appeared to be carrying a baby around its neck. They seemed to mean business as they growled at each other. The one that had pushed through the foliage first was a leader. There was little question as to his authority as he led the attack. Brooks, I said hurriedly. Let's try firing over their heads to see if we can scare them. Don't hit them, for heaven's sake, or we may have them in a frenzy. A wounded animal, if they are animals, won't stop. And if they are demons, the Sherpas will never forgive us if we kill them. The Sherpas, superstitious as they are, would rather be killed than offend their gods, especially here. Okay, George, you say when, he replied softly. We sighted carefully through the fog and waited until the repulsive faces were about ten feet away. We squeezed the triggers almost together. The blast swirled in the fog in front of us. Splinters of wood and torn leaves fell through the foliage. The creatures stopped abruptly. A deathly fearsome silence pervaded the darkening air. Let's give them another one, Brooks, I shouted more confident now. The second volley resounded and we were definitely reassured. A third round this time convinced the demons. They turned, howling like wounded coyotes, and fled into the thicket. 
The excited chattering from the gray gloom told us, however, that they had not gone far. Burks was reassured. As we reloaded, he asked jauntily, What's next, George? Shall we attack? I felt as Burks felt. We needed to do something and do it fast. On second thought, however, caution was required. Slowly, I said, We'll wait it out. I believe until our coolies catch up. We wouldn't have a chance if we moved forward or even tried to make a break. I don't believe that they'll attack the whole party. Our problem now is just how far behind are the coolies. It's getting dark and these pirates won't miss the chance to eat us alive if I don't miss my gas. In another 20 minutes, we won't be able to see it all. We sank back on the rock and waited there in the twilight, nervous as cats caught up a tree. We listened for the sound of the coolies, and we listened for the change in the growls from the thicket that might indicate another attack. At this point, we knew the demons were discussing our future and wondering how to play their cards. We tried to joke, but it was corny and useless. We were scared. The fog was unbearable. It penetrated our wet clothes and chilled our bodies. I shivered suddenly. The rock was uncomfortable. We squirmed continuously as rough edges dug into our muscles. Fog now, almost impenetrable, swirled slowly through the black foliage, throwing dark shadows here and there in wraith-like patterns. Grotesque forms appeared and gaped at us, only to disappear and leave our eyes red and tear-stained from the strain. Brooks pulled out a cigarette and lit it nervously. I knew he wasn't enjoying it. It couldn't be worth the effort. Perhaps it gave him something to do with his free hand. It was then that I discovered that I was unconsciously clicking the cylinder release on my revolver back and forth. Brooks gave me a dirty look and I stopped. The chattering and snarling from the thicket came only intermittently now. I tried to guess the leader's plan. Was he waiting for reinforcements? No, not likely. There couldn't be too many of them in the hills, and this no doubt was the entire pack. Planning to attack? This was more reasonable. No doubt they would hit us in one mad rush. Yes, a single massed attack at the time of their choosing. They would certainly wait until dark at any rate. Damn those coolies. Where were they? The lazy, unreliable boneheads. Have they bedded down for the night? No, they would want a village with all the comforts attached. They'll come. It was almost dark now. We kept straining to see through the gray mist. We were cold and wet. Our clothes clung to us. A black and yellow striped leech crawling up the rock fastened itself on Brooks' boot. The leech, unsure of its prey, stopped and listened. Weaving its upright body slowly in the air, I reached down and plucked it off the wet leather. Half-consciously, I rolled the worm in my fingers trying to crush it. It was too rubbery. I flung it into the trail in sudden disgust. The chattering around us was growing noticeably louder. Sudden loud and urgent growls pretended something new in the offing. Brooks, this is it. Shoot to kill this time and pray. I remember giving him one last look. We had met in Kathmandu only the year before. Already he had become a friend that I could know forever. I cocked the thirty-eight and waited. George... Brooks whispered excitedly. They've stopped talking. An uncanny and eerie silence pervaded the air. What was happening? I raised myself a bit higher on the rock. 
If they were crawling in for the attack, we had to make every shot count. In the bad light, a 38 would not be a very effective weapon, and they wouldn't be afraid this time. But not a movement was discernible. Not a sound could be heard. We waited anxiously, sweat adding to the soddenness of our clothes. Damn it, George, where are they? Then a sound from the right, a cracking of a twig. They're coming down the trail, George, can you see them? I sighted the barrel of the 38 at the leading figure in the mist. Almost now, a bit closer. Sahib? Sahib? A voice called in the darkness. I hesitated a moment and then came to a sudden realization. Brooks, Brooks, it's the coolies. Thank God we're okay now. Shiva, we're here. Shiva, on the rock. Come ahead. Beautiful, lovely Shiva. My Gurkha foreman, boss of the porters. One of the finest men I've ever known. Can ever hope to know. A loyal, dependable, quiet little man whose resource and strength lay deep within him. Not on the surface. A look from him had more effect on the Sherpas than a whiplash would have. For me, he was always there when I needed him. I needed him now. He was here. Sahib, you okay? We hear shots. We come up quick. God Almighty, we thank you, Brooks murmured. Yes, Shiva, we're okay now, I said. Let's go home. My staff and friends back in Kathmandu got quite a laugh when we described our experience on the ridge near Kusinkund. Several wanted to go back immediately, but the monsoon was on us and the torrents made mountain travel out of the question. When the rains had spent their fury, my medical duties took me twice again through the same region. I never saw the animals again. What was it that we saw? A mutant species that man has not yet categorized? Some kind of ape, large, erect, adapted to the high altitudes, made antisocial by its self-imposed isolation, jealous of any invasion of its realm, perhaps? Or was it an entirely new species, an undiscovered animal, a leftover remnant of a prehistoric day, a creature clever enough to elude the curiosity of man, inhabiting an area still almost wholly unpenetrated by even the Sherpas, who seldom stray from the time-worn trails. From 1816 to 1951, the country of Nepal, for all intent and purpose, was closed to the outside world. Even today, only a handful of outsiders have explored but a tiny portion of this land. Yet it was this handful, more interested in climbing mountains than foraging for new species, that brought back tales and evidence of the mysterious creature they call the Yeti. One thing is certain. Whatever science will someday discover it to be, the creature humankind has called the abominable snowman is there in the Himalayan heights. I know. I met it there on the pilgrim trail from Tarkegiong. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.